Partly it's fear of destiny. Partly it's bitterness at destiny. Partly it's fuck her. Moira hates this woman. Right. And she wants her to stay dead and she wants to punish Mystique by keeping her dead. If Irene calls, I'm not home. Right, right. Yeah, and Moira hates Mystique too because guess what? It might have been the golem she killed, but Mystique didn't know that. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast, where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Zach Rabaroff, a comics critic best known for his work at Comics XF, formerly Xavier Files. Zach is here to speak with me today about Dr. Myra McTaggart, nay Kenris lately known as Myra X. Zach, how are you doing today? I am doing well, and excellent job on that pan-Scottish-Irish accent, which I think absolutely nailed it. The people demand it. I actually read an acting coach's guide to m- mastering the, the, mastering the <laughs> Scottish accent, but it's not, it's, not, it's not coming. I tried. I practiced a little bit. We'll see. We'll see. It'll come and go. I, I, didn't, I didn't ken your Highland accent. I didn't ken your Highland accent. We're in Canaris land now. <laughs> She is the daughter of Lord Kenrus. The big thing that it said was like every eye, like in silver, needs to be silver. Like that's the key vowel shift. Silver? Silver is silver. Witness is wetness. Anything that is an I sound has to become an eh sound was like their big note. Oh, that's very good. That's from like the Edinburgh Royal Academy of Dramatic Tricks or whatever. This is an actor prepares with Connor Goldsmith. Thank you. Right. We're inside the actor's studio. I've wanted to talk about Moira for a while, but the thing is, like, the guests sort of direct the subject of the episodes. I approach people and ask them, who would you like to talk about? And you gave me a couple candidates. And one thing that you were interested in doing, which I thought was a fun idea, was one of the human allies of the X-Men. Right. We bandied about Val Cooper, perhaps the most hilarious neoliberal girl boss of all time. I think we were going to do that. But then you said, wait, wait, wait. What if we did Moira? Right. And I was like, oh, duh. Yeah. Because like she's not a human ally anymore, which we'll get into it. If you're confused, readers, a lot of people are confused about Moira and we're going to get into all of it for you. So don't worry about that. But in a way, the way the way that we came up with Moira is the most typical Moira thing of all, because it was only at the last second that we realized, oh, here she was lurking in the background, obviously, the entire time, and we never even realized it. Right! Like, Moira's right here. And it was funny, when I was doing some rereading for this, I pounded through the 1970s and 1980s really rapidly for Moira appearances. And the funniest thing is like you go to a Moira McTaggart reading order and most of the time she's in maybe two panels. Right. My goal was to find all of the weird little things that don't make sense so that we could try to make them make sense, right? Like we have to no prize our way. To, to, to rectify the existence of Moira McTaggart. Yeah, exactly. We're like golem spotting essentially <laughs> is how I'm thinking of it. But yeah, it went by really quick because outside of Proteus, she's just there most of the time as a as a supporting character until the slutty Moira period when she's possessed by the Shadow King. Right. Yeah. That lead up to the Muir Island saga. Yeah. And I'm not slut shaming evil Moira. I'm just saying that Chris Claremont has a specific visual signifier for someone turning evil and it's a leather bustier. That's kind of right. how that works. 
So the Shadow King gets in her head. She puts on a leather bustier. She starts like doing blood sport in the arena on Muir Island or whatever. Although, although I have to tell you that when I first read that storyline, it took me a couple of passes before I realized that anything was supposed to be up based on the visuals. Like the characters had to say it. Lorna had to say something about it. Everyone had to say Moira doesn't usually dress like that because I thought it was just almost the 90s now and everyone's right. wearing a bustier. I thought that given sufficient time, every Claremont woman becomes a Claremont woman. Like, they're all just going to start dressing like that. Yeah. The Marvel Girl to Dominatrix pipeline is really consistent right. with a Claremont female character most of the time. So yeah, it wasn't until everyone was like, Moira's sure acting weird, that I was like, oh, something's wrong. Because right. before that, I was just sort of like, well, Moira's getting her groove back. It's Moira's second act. Like, she's 40-something and ready to party. <laughs> It was just an interesting thing to backread because, yeah, there's the Muir Island saga and then she has the brief plot at the very end of Claremont's initial run on Asteroid M with Magneto. Right. And then she's just kind of shuffled off to legacy virus hell with Beast for the next, like, 10 years. Right. And put into the sort of waiting room purgatory that every X-Men character got shuffled off to when they needed to, which was Excalibur. Yes. Which was being consistently published and had enough of a following to be consistently published, but was just totally off to the side. Let me tell you, as an Excalibur fan, (laughs) the 90s are a fascinating time. Now listen, I talk up Excalibur on this podcast a great deal, and I am not suggesting that every issue of the Claremont and Davis Excalibur is absolutely brilliant. There are some weak storylines. It's not perfect. But overall, it's a pretty solid run of comics for those 60-odd issues, barring the fill-ins that happen sometimes when someone else is just randomly writing it and it's not great. Right. The moment that Davis leaves, it literally just becomes, as you say, a hanger where you can store disused X-Men characters right, as like, though they were decommissioned planes. Like, okay, wheel Colossus in here. We're going to keep him here for a while. Oh, uh, you need to do something with Wolfsbane? Let's just shuffle her off right. to Muir Island. Like, you know, it's very much that. Every discarded X character who's not fitting anywhere else, but they've got to keep that IP active. Right. We want this character in circulation, but we don't know what to do with them. And there were two places you could send them. X-Factor and Excalibur. Right. Those were the two side books that characters would just turn up in. Like, hmm, we don't have a plot for Mystique and Sabretooth in X-Men right now. Let's send them to X-Factor and have them cause problems on purpose. And listen, by the standards of the late 90s, if you're getting sent to Excalibur and not Howard Mackey's X-Factor, it is a blessing. You have been blessed by the (laughs) X-Editor. I... There's bits and pieces of the Howard Mackie X-Factor I remember liking, but I also haven't read it in about 20 years. It's completely and utterly out of its mind. Oh, it's insane. You know, I just mostly remember I thought Shard was cool. Shard was and is cool. I was enjoying the Shard of it all. And I actually did like the Mystique and Forge thing, especially because it was building off Destiny's weird prophecy about Mystique and Forge right before she died. Right. Where she's like, you'll love each other one day. And Mystique's like, that is very weird, Irene. Let's not talk well, about this there's, right now. There's, there's a lot to dig into with Mystique, and we will be digging into a chunk of that here. Well, yes, because Mystique and Destiny are going to play a pretty big role in this episode. Because the thing about Moira that you might not appreciate if you're someone who's new to the X-Men is that Moira McTaggart was, as we said, the ultimate supporting character. 
She was around. She was here for any plot purpose she needed to fulfill. She was the X-Men's best friend. And she served that purpose for roughly 25 years. And then they killed her off. It was Claremont who killed her off, actually, when he came back to the books, which is interesting to think about. Right. Yeah. Like his 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 final act during the revolution period was to wrap up her storyline. Yeah. Yeah. Then came Deadly Genesis, which we'll get to, which is a retcon story that uses Moira um, poorly, in my opinion. And then we get to House of X. And House of X number two is one of the most audacious issues of a big two comic I have ever read in my entire life. Yes, not just for what it does to that series, but for what it does to the entire X-Men franchise as it existed up to that point. It recontextualizes everything from X-Men 96 in 1975. Yes. It is the kind of retcon that is almost unheard of in terms of how many stories it theoretically fucks up. Yes. Like the only comparable one I can think of is Chris Claremont deciding midway through the 80s that Xavier and Magneto are old friends. Mm -hmm. Just putting that on the page and you have to deal with it now. And it makes the 60s stories not really make sense, but we're just gonna roll with it. This one is similar in that it says everything you ever thought you knew about the X-Men is wrong. Here's the real story and asks you to follow along. And it's no surprise that there are some people who don't like this. Right. I think they're crazy because I think this is the best thing to happen to the X-Men maybe since 1991. I think it is absolutely brilliant. And I think it took me maybe a week to fully wrap my head around the fact that it was absolutely brilliant. I think for the first week after I read that issue... Shock. I was genuinely unsure if this destroyed every X-Men comic I had ever read. Right. Or if it added a layer to it that fundamentally enhanced it. And I have settled on the latter, and I'm sure that it is the latter... For all of the contradictions that it introduces into Moira and her earlier appearances, I think it creates, underneath the X-Men story, the structure of a narrative that makes it stronger than it had been before. I agree. I think that's a good moment. Oh, first, a couple corrections. I recorded a bunch of episodes in quick sequence because I had to get ahead of certain things and because I had a death in the family. So I haven't had a chance to do any corrections in a while. Just a couple beats. My father was very irked that in the Polaris episode, I said that Bobby had taken Lorna back to the X-Mansion when, of course, they were in San Francisco at the time. My dad is, as we have said, a 60s X-Men aficionado. So he was just like, how could you get that wrong? And the answer to how I could get that wrong, I've mentioned this before. After I complete my files, I cross-reference them with the profiles at UncannyXMen.net. And they said the X-Men were at the X-Mansion. And I just assumed they were right. Because I was like, I must have made a mistake. Rookie rookie error. And it turns out, it turns out I was right. And UncannyXMen.net needs to update the Polaris profile. That aside... I neglected also to mention in the Cypher episode, Cypher's adventures with all new X-Factor, the corporate X-Factor team. That wasn't really an oversight (laughs) so much as me thinking you don't need to worry about it. But uh, he did appear in that book. Check it out if you want. I wouldn't really recommend it. Not gonna, not gonna, not gonna make you. Another story that I failed to mention and I was kicking myself because I did mean to mention it and it's relevant to Moira is somehow in the episode on Kitty slash Kate, I 
forgot to talk about X-Men True Friends in the character file. Stephanie and I talked about it in the discussion, but X-Men True Friends is an insane miniseries by Chris Claremont (laughs) that you absolutely do not need to read. But if you want to, it's funny, in which Kitty and Rachel time travel back to World War II and have to be convinced by destiny not to kill Hitler because it will destroy the timeline. (laughs) And in the process, Kitty falls in love with Moira's grandfather, Alistair Kinross, but they don't, they can't be together because she has to return to her own time. I like to think that Moira and Destiny's eternal rivalry actually began there when (laughs) Destiny almost (laughs) led Moira not to be born because Kitty and Alistair Kinross were going to hook up. It was a creative solution. I'll hand it to her. And uh, this isn't a correction. This is just a note. Someone wrote in and they were a little upset on last week's episode. We were talking about Brett Booth being a really intense atheist. And I said that he'd made some comments about Jews and Muslims that I thought were inappropriate. And I made a joke that I said, maybe he should focus on Christians because they're the ones with all the power. I just want to be clear. That was a joke. Fabian and I were joking around. I don't think anyone should be targeted for their faith. I just think that sometimes, oh, I'm an atheist can be used as an excuse for comments about Muslims in particular that I think are harmful. So that was just a joke I was making. And I apologize if anybody's feelings were hurt. I talked to the person who was upset and they seem like they're not upset anymore. So that's fine. I just want to be clear. We're going to have fun. This is a jokey podcast. I am shooting from the hip, but we also are tackling pretty serious stuff sometimes. So I don't want anybody to think I'm being glib about anything important like that. And to be clear, some of my best friends are Christian. That's a joke also, because (laughs) it's the thing people say when they're defending themselves. (laughs) Point is, as you were saying, Zach, this story, this retcon, reframed everything we had ever read about the X-Men all at once. What is your history of reading the X-Men? How did you start? What is your origin story here? How did you come to these characters? Where did it all begin for you? So I have the typical origin story of a child of the 90s. I was seven years old in 1993 when the X-Men animated series debuted on TV. And I made the strategic decision not to go out trick-or-treating on the Halloween where they first aired the premiere of Night of the Sentinels. Mm. And I think after I saw that episode, I talked about the X-Men so incessantly to my parents that my mother, bless her heart forever, ventured out into a comic book store. How she ever even found one, I don't know. We didn't have the Google back then, kids. Right, no. you really had to look. Yellow pages. And Lord knows she had never been to one by her own volition. But she went in there and she bought me an X-Men comic, which was X-Men Unlimited number one, the first Chris Boccolo X-Men comic Mm -hmm. at Marvel. And that was really the beginning of the end for me. I was an X-Men obsessive for the better part of the next decade, but virtually everything in the X-Men line from there up until about the end of 1996, maybe into 1997. And then also very typical of 90s X-Men fans, Onslaught just destroyed me. Onslaught, The Onslaught crossover at the end of the 90s was the moment when I think it finally dawned on me that the writers really did not know what they were doing, that they were making it up as they went along and they had no game plan for this and it was just going to be declining returns from here on out. That's where I checked out till Morrison, if I'm being honest. I was out. I just went back to the classic stuff. I went back to my dad's back issues and all of that because I was like, I'm not, it's not good. It's just not good. So it was, it was worse for me. I, I checked out 
I checked briefly back in when I heard Claremont was coming back, was completely deflated by that. Yeah, the revolution. Checked back in again when Morrison came in, because I had loved JLA, was at the time grossly disappointed by New X-Men, and checked out again. Oh. And did not come back until four years ago? When I made the terrible life decision to read every Marvel comic ever published, and only then did I catch up on all of the X-Men books that I had missed. Yeah, you did do that. That is the other thing that you are known for. I had Corey McCreary on, and she did the Read Every X-Men comic project. You read every Marvel comic that's ever been published in the span of about three years, wasn't it? I did do that. Uh, That was a life decision that I can never take back. Yeah, and you liked New X-Men better upon revisiting, I imagine. Yes, I have issues with it. I still think it's a significantly (laughs) flawed run, but I was not, you know, hurling it across the room in the way that I was in 2001. That's interesting. So when New X-Men came out, I was 13 when that first issue came out. I'm a couple years younger than you. And my initial reaction to it was objection because of the way it felt as if Morrison did not care about previous continuity. And that bothered me as an obsessive. Like, we're in Mumbai, and Excort Mumbai is Feral and Thorn. And I'm like, Thorn just helped put Feral in prison for life the last time we saw them. Why are they working together on an Excort team? Right. Little things like that about characters nobody gives a shit about. No offense to the Feral fan who wrote in for last week's episode with Fabian Niciesa. Does it actually matter now that I'm in my 30s? No, it doesn't actually matter that Grant Morrison did not read a story about Feral and Thorn that no one actually cares about. Similarly, like, Unus the Untouchable died again in the same way that he died in the 90s. Right. So it was things like that where I was just like, ah. But as it went on, I really came to appreciate the things it was doing with the characters. And I stuck on because it did feel like the first time in my conscious lifetime Because, again, in 96, let's say, when AOA ends, I'm eight. Right. So as the book was coming out, it had been bad. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, I mean, Kelly and Siegel do some stuff that's okay. Like, there's there's stuff that's not... But it it had been bad. And I think what what I've come around to see, what is undeniable to me, is that it's the kind of run that needed to happen. That's the thing. I think it saved the franchise, whether or not you like all of it. Yeah, the ideas that Morrison was was introducing, the, 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 the kind of radical innovation that they were bringing to the X-Men, that had to happen because it couldn't just keep repeating those same beats over and over again with fewer and fewer returns. That said, I think that Morrison misunderstood and in some case dismissed the characters in ways that just didn't track with any of their earlier actions or appearances or relationships to each other. See, the only character I feel that way about in Morrison is Magneto. Right. Well, and that was a very deliberate decision. Yeah, that's like a choice that they make. I've gone into that in detail on this podcast. I understand why they did it. I think it's a brilliant story, but I get why they. Oh, and not and not and not to sidetrack us too much, yeah. but there are definitely some there are definitely some characters that they nail just absolutely get right. You know, Emma Frost, chief among them. I think. Yeah. I think Morrison wrote the definitive Emma. I also think Morrison wrote the definitive post Phoenix Jean. I mean, I really do. It's not a whole lot of competition. Is the unfortunate part? Well, for, right. For such you know, a great character, there aren't a lot of like. Terrific good Jean, Jean Grey, Grey stories. stories. There are almost none, unfortunately. Right. Uh, similarly, 
I think that the way they I mean, like for me, it's that the core team was written so well. I think that their take on Scott and Hank is really good. I think that their take on well, their take on Wolverine is to make him a supporting character, which is where I like him. So right, yeah, that no, that's, was <laughs> that's, that's where he should be. But but I but I I don't know. I, I have a lot of problems with what happened to Hank McCoy in that run, which I think has set the path for Hank McCoy ever since. Uh, see, I think the path, I think the path had already been set years before. I think the only reason it looks like that is because Morrison created a direction for that character that was so severe and the kind of thing that it was so difficult to turn back from because it was well-written that there was no way to see Hank McCoy as anything except a mutant who was ashamed of being a mutant and could never reconcile that with being an X-Man. Yeah, see, I just, I don't know. Go back to the episode I did on Beast with Spencer Ackerman because I think that's in the DNA from the 60s. Point is, we are getting sidetracked, as you said. (laughs) So... You came back a couple years ago, so you missed most of the really bad stuff. You also missed Mike Carey, who was great, but you've now read it all. Right, yes. I have to say, I think a lot of people fell off the X-Men from House of M up until Bendis, or from House of M up until now. Right, which, which, as it happens, are the Moiralis years. They are. That is the whole Moiralis... You know, that, that is the thing, is there are people... There was this person on Twitter who was very insistent to me the first few months of the podcast, like, oh, this Moira Ratcon ruined Moira. Moira's been dead for 20 years. Right. If anything, you should be happy, if you like the character, that she's back. Right. We're actually to the... We're seeing Moira again. She's more important than she's ever been. She's being kept strategically out of sight right now. But yeah, I mean, she's being brought back as a major character, certainly more major in terms of her significance to what the X-Men mean and what their purpose is than she ever was before. I mean, this is Moira's star turn. Yeah. That leads into, I guess, an obvious question, which is why did you want to talk about Moira on this podcast? So what really attracted me to X-Men in the first place and to comics generally, because this is the kind of like specific history nerd that I am, is the overarching scope of continuity. And I love the characters who float around the edges of continuity and, in a real sense, knit it all together, who are the fibers that hold all of these disparate X-Men stories from different runs and different writers together. And I think, in a very real sense, Moira always has been the character who does that for the X-Men. She is always there beneath the surface, behind the scenes, creating the fabric on which the X-Men exist. And for a long time, prior to Jonathan Hickman, she did that as what I think was a really interesting and a really necessary kind of character in the X-Men mythos, which was she was the model of the good ally. Mm -hmm. She was not a mutant, But she always stood in solidarity with the mutant community, deliberately never trying to take away their voice, never trying to take the role of a Charles Xavier or an Eric Lenscher as the spokesperson for mutant kind, but always doing everything in her power to advance their cause and assist their efforts and make sure that the status of mutants on Earth was demonstrably improved, which I thought was a really interesting kind of character to exist. 
Yeah, and that is the one thing about the retcon that some people are upset about that I think yes. is reasonable. Do you think it damages the character to reveal that she was a mutant all along? I that that when I said it took me a week to reconcile myself to the retcon, that was really the thing that was holding me back. Same. I had the same reaction initially. It was difficult for me to decide whether what the X-Men had lost in sacrificing this notion of the good human ally and what it may have done to Moira to reveal that she was in fact keeping her mutanthood secret the entire time outweighed the benefits of turning her into a central mutant character. I've decided that it doesn't because I think it adds depth to the character. I agree. I don't think that Hickman and his colleagues who are going to be working with the character, I don't think they're attempting to elide or avoid what it means that Moira was keeping secret her mutant identity. Right. I think it is deliberately troubling for others and for her. It's not something that she wants to have done. It's something that she needs to have done because on that secret, the survival of mutant kind Of the species hinges. Yes. Yeah, I had the same initial reaction, which was, I mean, I was so blown away that I felt like I was in shock and I didn't quite know how to process it. And at first I was like, does this ruin Moira McTaggart or does this make Moira McTaggart one of the best characters of all time? And I finally sort of settled on the second answer for a couple of reasons. One is that there are other characters who model human allyship and allyship to marginalized people in a way that is on some level a little more true to how that tends to manifest in the real world. Mm-hmm. Moira's single-minded determination to aid mutant kind, it's a bit of a white savior character, right? Like if you were to look at it as a racial metaphor, a majority savior coming to help the downtrodden. I think it runs the risk of turning into that. And I think it would be that if not for the existence of Xavier and Magneto, if not for those other two parts of what, of what we now in, in Hoxpox realizes a kind of triumvirate of mutant kind, if not for them, then she would be a very problematic character swooping in to save the mutants. And I also think that there was something It makes sense as a turn, but there's something fucked up about how, like, she catches mutant aids. Like, that's her storyline, right? Is She's so close to the mutants and is so selfless about loving mutants that she catches the legacy virus and she's the only human ever to get it. And listen, there were real frontline doctors who became HIV positive because they were working with gay patients when no one else would. That is a story that if you're doing that AIDS metaphor, I understand going there. Right. Whether whether it was a good idea to stumble into a metaphor for AIDS in 1990s X-Men is a debate in itself, but... After talking to Fabian last week, I'm actually a little more sympathetic to it, yeah. just because clearly they weren't allowed to do real HIV plots. Right. So, you know... In its moment, it makes sense. But we're talking about the late 90s. This is after she's been shuffled off to Excalibur. It's like she shuffled off to Excalibur. Also, she has the legacy virus. What I came around to is like that kind of purely selfless. Now, there's also she's driven by guilt about her son. So there's that aspect. It's not 100% selfless. But for the most part, it's pretty selfless to the point where, you know, she dies to cure the legacy virus, much as Colossus does. I think that characters like Valerie Cooper are actually more apt as 
that character in terms of the metaphor. Mm -hmm. Because you look at someone like Val Cooper, Val Cooper believes that she, and we'll we'll come back to this when you return for a Val Cooper episode someday. Val Cooper believes that she is a staunch ally of mutant kind and certainly has knocked herself out many times to protect mutants and to defend mutants or whatever, but it's mostly in the service of controlling. Right. Mutants. But, but she would be the last person ever to acknowledge or recognize she doesn't that. Know that. Right. And so when mutants resent her role or blanch against her attempts to control what they're doing or how they're spreading. She has like a white fragility response. She's outraged and hurt and she cannot believe their lack of gratitude for everything that she's done. Right. It's like after everything I, Valerie Cooper, have done for the mutants, how dare you accuse me of being a racist? To think, to think how many government promotions she could have gotten if not for what she's given up for these people. Right. I could be president by now if I wasn't a mutie lover, but I am. Right. Yeah. No, exactly. Val, to me, is a much more legit... Certainly a much more convincing and realistic character. Right. What I guess I would say is the Moira, as she was, is an idealized ally in a way that we love to believe exists, but it makes a lot more sense if she was secretly a mutant the whole time. (laughs) She is an idealized ally to exactly the extent and in exactly the same way that Charles Xavier is an idealized leader. Yes. And for for the same reason, neither of them feel relevant or convincing in 2021. Yeah. Because we have moved past this point where that kind of idealization of how a minority or a marginalized identity can succeed or find acceptance in the world feels plausible we need something else and in both cases we have received something else from that character right now we understand that charles is a very different man from i mean in this one retcon actually we find that charles is and here's the interesting point because deadly genesis which we'll get into in a bit you know deadly genesis presents Xavier as so morally reprobate that I think it kind of destroyed the character. Yeah. Completely. And they've never quite been able to walk it back to the point where when Dark Phoenix Cyclops kills him in Avengers versus X-Men, I'm like, why are people mad about this? Right. Like, no, remember, that's, that's, like, see, given, <laughs> given everything we know, this is the only thing to do. You need like, to do this. That guy sucks. Yeah, we get we get to this point where by the time Cyclops kills him. We're in a situation where, like, when people ask, why doesn't Batman just kill the Joker? You need to ask, like, why hasn't Cyclops just killed Professor Professor Exile? Right. Yeah. So that was a case of complicating Xavier that I thought was clumsy. I'm an Ed Brubaker fan. I think that Ed Brubaker's X-Men is pretty weak. I think that Deadly Genesis, although the backup stories with the backstories of the new characters are sensational, I think that Deadly Genesis itself is pretty bad. And in part, it's bad because I think it drains Moira's agency so dramatically in a way that I find out of step with the character from the Claremont stories. Because even when she was a supporting character, she was always a person with a lot of agency who was acting of her own volition. And then it also just, it was like, Charles is a bad guy after all. And like, first of all, we already did Onslaught. Right. We've already done that one fill-in story that... uh 
The Bill Mantlow issue with Bill Mantlow. Yes, yeah. of course it's Bill Mantlow. If you have their leader becoming an evil, a secretly yep. evil villain who wears a cape, of course it's going to be a Bill Mantlow. Story. Yeah, the Bill Mantlow issue. It's it's a Chris Claremont issue, but co-plotted by Bill Mantlow because Cockrum needed some time because Chris had asked him to invent like fifty characters right. because the Dark Phoenix saga was about to happen, and so they needed the whole Shi'ar Imperial Guard, all of that. So it was just like a whole thing. And so Mantlo came up with an idea where, like, they fight an evil projection of Xavier. You get this Bill Mantlo-Bob Brown villain that ends up leading to Onslaught two decades later. That's the thing. is, I'm like, we already did that. Then we did Onslaught. It's like, in case you didn't get that, here's Onslaught. And now Deadly Genesis is like, did you know Professor Xavier is actually (laughs) a bad guy? And it's like, yes, I've read X-Men comics before that came out after 1978. And that's the thing. And I think that that's what Brubaker thought he was doing. Brubaker, I think his intention was to build off of these previous stories that were showing Xavier to be, at best, an ambivalent figure in X-Men history. He took it much too far. He takes it too far. He takes it way too far, and then the character is kind of destroyed. So what is interesting about the House of X retcon is, by giving Xavier and Moira this secret together, it retroactively makes perfect ally Moira McTaggart a more explicable character. Right. Because even the most, and listen, my grandparents were involved in the civil rights movement. Like, I'm not saying that people are not genuine allies, but no white person who participated in the civil rights movement is as perfect as Moira McTaggart is in participating in the mutant rights movement. Like, that's just a fact. Right, right. There's never an ally who's that saintly. Even when she does something evil, you're like, oh, but we understand, Moira. Like, all of the stuff with Proteus or the plot with Magneto when he was a baby or whatever. It's all, she's always forgiven and she always meant well and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, part, and part of the reason for that, I think, is that in the pre-House of X version of Moira, and especially in the Chris Claremont version of Moira, what we never do get is the why for what she's doing, what she's doing. Correct. We understand who she is. We get a very good sense of her character. But we never, aside from her personal history with her estranged husband and her son, we don't really understand what it is that's leading her to devote her entire existence as a human to the mutant cause. And we never even really understand what happened in her background with Charles Xavier that made her call off their relationship. That always is a strange little mystery in their past. So, yeah, I was just rereading those issues, the Moira scenes in them. But first, just to tie up the point I was making, this retcon about the two of them, it not only makes Moira make more sense, it makes Charles make more sense and Mm -hmm. makes Charles more complicated in a way that is morally ambiguous rather than the Deadly Genesis style. This guy is a real villain. Right. And I think that that's necessary. But to go back, I was reading the early Moira appearances. She first shows up in Claremont's first issue as full plotter scripter. Right. Which is 96, because 94 and 95 were plotted by Len Wein and scripted by Claremont. That's where Thunderbird dies and all that. You know that Claremont's taken over because the first story is like a demon attacks the X-Mansion. Right. It has an Ankara demon and a woman storming in while holding a submachine gun. With a machine gun, which is Mary McTaggart. I'm just going to read the dialogue because it's so delightful. I'm a big (laughs) fan of this panel. So Banshee tries to kill the Ungarai demon with a sonic blast and it doesn't work. And Moira says, well, if sonic blast will do no good, let's see how yon kilpy fares against close range machine gun fire. (laughs) And it goes burp and she's shooting a machine gun next to a door marked armory. We never see the X-Men's armory again, but 
I'm glad they had one in this instance. <laughs> the thing that's wild about this, and this is what I say to people who are upset about the Moira retcon, Moira's entire existence is built on retcons. She is an eternally retconned character. Right. The first time we meet Moira in X-Men 96, she's introduced as the Widow McTaggart, the X-Men's hot new housekeeper. And she and Charles have some kind of backstory together, but we don't know anything about it. It's not until like 10 issues later that we find out that she's a doctor. Right. She's actually she's actually a research scientist who runs that she has a, a whole facility, facility on yeah. Muir Island. And not only that, that she has a Nobel Prize in genetics. Right. For her work on mutation. She has a Nobel Prize that on this facility is going to turn out to be her super powerful mutant yes, son. Yes, her omega level mutant son. To say, who to is say a nothing psychopath. of the de aged Magneto who has been that, put in her it care. It turns out she was taken care of right. after that story. And then in a classic X Men backup, we find out that she also helped Jean when Jean was traumatized as an 11 year old. Right. And that she has been helping Xavier the whole time. Then in Deadly Genesis, obviously, we find out even more, and that stuff's dumb. But my point is. Everything that happens with Moira over the course of the first maybe 15 years of her publication is retcon after retcon after retcon because that is what Claremont did. Claremont was writing month to month and Claremont filled in backstories as they occurred to him. Right. I don't know if he planned, like, it's possible that he always knew that Moira was going to be revealed as this scientist who had worked with Xavier because it's clear that they have a past together from the very beginning. But... The housekeeper thing doesn't make a ton of sense in retrospect. It's like, why is she in a cover identity as the housekeeper? No one ever asks about it again. Right. Once they reveal the facility, it's just like, oh, well, this is what I actually do. And everyone's like, okay. In fact, it it really, you can only make sense of it in light of the House of X retcon, where you think like, maybe maybe she sort of flirts at the time with the notion of like, should we keep this secret from the X-Men? Is right. it safer They're if like, we just don't say exactly, anything? Exactly, exactly. Should I just show up and keep tabs on things as the housekeeper? And he's like, oh, that's not a bad idea. And then- Then some demons show up and they're like, well, I guess that's out the she's window. She's like, well, I guess that's out the window. Well, they and they need to use the, well, no, actually what happens is Proteus is new right. to Life 10. And I wouldn't be surprised if like, well, no, because it's before that, because Angus McWhirter tries to destroy Muir Island because the X-Men stiffed him on his hovercraft that's, thing or That's whatever. right. Well, poor, actually, they paid him, but he feels stiff. Poor, poor you know, Angus McWhirter, who unleashed the rest of X-Men history. all of X-Men history by opening the door and getting Proteus out there. Yeah, I mean, the point is, this is what Claremont did. This is how he developed characters. He would add things retroactively to their backstory. And because... The 60s X-Men stories had almost no backstory for anyone. It was very easy to do that. Moira is a character who is just progressively unveiled as centrally important to the X-Men mythos. It is, even in 1975, insane that a female geneticist who won the Nobel Prize in the subject of mutation isn't someone the X-Men would have heard of and recognized when she shows up at their house. Right. Like, that doesn't make any sense banshee's even like to think we thought she was a housekeeper and it's like yeah you know because that doesn't make any sense <laughs> and claremont would often nod to things like that like it's his version of don't worry about it. right yeah like clear, clearly i've changed say, my like, mind since huh. last issue just roll with it right just roll with it so this is just in like the dance of the seven veils that has been moira's progressive development over time this is just the final reveal right it's the big reveal and i think that it helps more than it hurts because so much about Moira because of the way her history is retconned together by not only Claremont but then successive writers doing their own things 
it doesn't make any sense. What I also noticed reading those early stories was when Xavier is like poisoned or whatever it is, I forgot. When Xavier is in a bad way and Misty Knight is holding him and he flashes back to a conversation with Moira. Mm -hmm. He's like, I can't believe you're here for me after what I did to you. Right. Implying that he left her or that he did something to her that made her leave. But that's not what we find out. Two two issues later, essentially, I think. It's like very, very shortly thereafter, we find out that he got drafted and she sent him a Dear John letter. Right. For for reasons that Claremont never gets never around explains. to filling in. Suddenly, Moira is the one who did the bad thing. Right. This is my point. There was no plan. And Claremont will be the first person to tell you he was flying by the seat of his pants a lot of the time. But particularly with two months between every issue during that period, he had a lot of time to rethink things and come up with new ideas. To be like, wait, what if this character's a scientist? So I've come around to really liking it. And I came around very quickly. Like you said, it took me like a week to process. And then I was like, all right, I'm in. I'm all in. And the thing that I then, of course, went to in my head was, but what about Excalibur? Because as someone who did read that book, one of the we few, we (laughs) sometimes happy few who read Excalibur all the way through to the end, that storyline doesn't make a lick of sense now. No. At all. That is why the Shi'ar Golem is such a brilliant little bit from Hickman. Just dropping into the timeline with no further explanation. Or even further specification, this ultimate of Moira Handwave saying anything that you've just noticed no longer makes sense, Gollum. The answer is Gollum. Well, because I like it. It's, it's, it's when she dies and it says, Moira fakes her death with a Shi'ar Golem. And it's like, okay, but if she fakes her death, does it mean she was replaced with the Golem right there? When was she yes, replaced with the Golem? Exactly. And that is what makes it work. Theron hangs the tail. Right. Because I've actually been thinking about this a lot. And I think that Moira taps out and is replaced by the golem after the adventure in the early 90s when Amelia Vogt wants to kill her, when she's captured by the Acolytes. So this is possible, but I think it introduces the problem that ultimately the cure to the legacy virus would have been in that case discovered not by Moira, but by her replacement golem. But the replacement golem has her mind. We think. I mean, we don't know. A Shi'ar golem well, that's the is point. a concept that's the introduced point. entirely in this single line yes. in the timeline in the back matter of Powers but of listen, Ten. listen, what I'm saying is if the Shi'ar golem was able to participate in the Chaos War when Moira was apparently resurrected. Right. Then it's a pretty complex golem. It also, they do say it was their trial of the resurrection protocol. Right. So it's a very advanced thing. I think that what's interesting is, well, here's what it really is. I don't think Moira can be Moira anymore once Moira contracts the legacy virus, because there are lots of scenes of her and Charles by themselves talking about it. Right. The character that gets the legacy virus, I think, has to be the golem. But then why would Charles have these intimate conversations with the golem? Why would he very literally make out with the golem on the streets of Paris reminiscing about their shared past? I think Charles is a weirdo. And I also <laughs> think I also think that the golem needs to believe it's the real Moira. So this is so this is Charles helping along the fraud that the golem needs to remain convinced that it is Moira McTaggart. 
I think that the golem only has the tenth life of Moira in its head and needs to believe that it is Moira and that she is a normal human and all of that stuff in the cover identity and that Charles maintains the fiction. Or that's the real Moira and Moira is not replaced by the golem until virtually the moment of her death or sometime before in that last storyline. But then why are Moira and Charles talking to each other with no witnesses about how she's the first human to get the legacy virus? This is the question. But then why would he have those conversations with the golem? Because the golem thinks that she is human ally Dr. Moira McTaggart. And and then what what is the rationale for convincing the golem that she is a human instead of a mutant. Because the golem is a rogue element and it can't be in on their whole plan because what if something goes wrong with the golem? It's a prototype. It works. My point is that we're supposed to hand wave all of this. We're just right. no prizing this together now. But the other thing is, if it's the real Moira and the real Moira has the legacy virus, which has killed everyone has infected up to this point in the story, she and Charles would be having very different conversations in private because the second the legacy virus killed her, it would reset the timeline. Right. That's the bigger problem. That story is about Moira facing her own mortality, which becomes very different now. Right, unless Moira is just so confident that she can cure the legacy virus that it's but never she's not. A if you read the problem for her, like she's not actually worried about her death in the face of this, it would not explain why they're referring to her as the first human to contract the legacy virus. Yeah, like to Charles. And if you read the Excalibur stories, which I did recently reread those, woof. Yeah. The. Uh, <laughs> I think the only thing that makes sense, because Charles is maintaining the fiction that she's a human when they're alone together, the only way it makes sense to me is that she's been replaced by the golem by then, and the golem is a sleeper and doesn't know it's a golem and doesn't know any of Moira's real stuff. Right. And it's never going to operate smoothly. That period No, we just have to let it go. We just have to let it go. And I understand, much like people were turned off initially by Morrison because of Morrison's lack of fealty to the continuity. I understand if you are a big continuity head, if you are one of those people who makes profiles on UncannyXMen.net, if you have been trying for years to arrange X-Men stories in such a way that a character's history can be presented in a chronological way that makes sense as one complete narrative— then of course this is going to bother you because it makes about 10 years of Moira's history not make any sense. Right. However, I would argue it doesn't matter because those 10 years of Moira's story are widely seen as some of the worst years of the X-Men, frankly. And that's the thing. Like, I I think continuity serves a better purpose than a lot of people would give it credit for. I think that if if we can envision these characters to whatever extent possible as having a unified history that has gone from the very beginning until now, it gives a greater weight to their overall saga than it would otherwise have. I agree. But that doesn't mean that everything has to have equal weights. Right. And if you introduce a retcon that is so fundamentally better than the story it's overwriting, that what you're losing is never going to matter again and what you're going what you're gaining is going to be referenced for years to come then by all means do it people have always done things like that we're just talking about how claremont did things like that relentlessly relentlessly throughout his run over 16 years i mean the the thing i point to is there is a moira mctaggart action figure on its way to me in a week or two right there has never been a moira mctaggart action figure before if you like this character this is the best thing that has ever happened to her I think it's one of the best things that's ever happened to the X-Men. The problem is because of the way, and I don't think this is actually a problem, but the issue, I guess I would say, is that 
because of the way Hickman writes, which is purposely opaque, particularly mm-hmm. in Hoxpox, a lot of people seem confused about what the deal is with Moira now. Yesterday, I had someone ask me on Twitter, like, so if everything before House of X were her previous lives, and I'm like, no, 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 no. So right. people don't quite get how it works. So just before we go into the character file, which we'll do in a sec, I just want to give you an understanding of how the Moira X retcon works. First of all, Moira X is a brilliant, brilliant new way to refer to the character for a number of different reasons. Yes. It has, it probably has 10 meanings if I think them all out, <laughs> but Moira X as the counterpart to Professor X as a leader of the X-Men, as the person who deals with the X factor. That's the first obvious thing. Moira 10, because it's the 10th life Mm. of Moira. And also Moira X in the sense of an algebraic X, because it refers to all 10 lives of her as Moira Kinras, Moira Cowan, Moira McTaggart, Moira Xavier. It doesn't matter what her last name is. Not to mention... X as the mystery, Moira as the mutant who is undetectable by mutant scanners and by other mutants like Destiny, and as a clever little nod to the original name for her son Proteus. Who I was about to, to say, and Proteus, Proteus was called Mutant X in her lab as a way of covering up his identity. Right. So it calls back to all these things, and it also just really throws down a gauntlet to say this is something new. We are doing something new with this character. I just think it's brilliant. I do love the one reality where she's called Mother Akaba. Yes. Which I don't think fits into the Moira X schema, but man, that's good. (laughs) So here's how it works. If you're confused, which a lot of people are confused. One thing that might help you is when Ten of Swords came out, they did a Ten of Swords handbook. And the handbooks, I would say, are very much like sub-level canon. They're official Marvel products, but they're not reviewed by Marvel editorial in the same way. And so if something in the handbook is contradicted by something in the comics, the comics should win out. Right. But the Ten of Swords handbook has a bio from Moira McTaggart that gives you all 10 of her lives chronologically, which is helpful because Hoxpox jumps around between them and it can be a little tricky. So here's the deal. Everything we have ever experienced in the Marvel universe starting in, well, before it was Marvel, but if we're talking about Marvel, you know, since the 60s onward, all of that has been the 10th life of Moira. It is a story engine. It's not meant to be a reboot. Nothing has been rebooted. We haven't done a crisis like DC style. And I do think that Marvel's great strength is in its continuous continuity. It makes things tricky with the sliding timescale, but I do think it makes stories feel like they have more weight. Right. Whereas the DC problem of we're rebooting our entire universe every five to ten years makes a lot of stories feel like they don't matter. This is just a way of recontextualizing Moira. The first nine lives happened in previous iterations of Earth-616 that were obliterated upon her death and reset to the moment of her birth. Right, because what we learn over the course of House of X, Powers of Ten, is that while Moira's power may appear to her to be reincarnation, in the fundamental sense, the universe is being recreated around her. Rewound, yeah. She is the only survivor of the previous iterations of the universe, except for those who have been able to reach the center of a singularity, who are transported to some higher god realm that allows them to survive. 
Hickman will certainly be coming back to this later. Yeah, which is how Rasputin and those other characters from Powers of Ten will eventually come back. But for the most part, anyone who didn't enter the heart of a black hole is completely obliterated and overwritten when the timeline rewinds itself. And Jordan White confirmed this on his episode of this very podcast. Right. All of those Earths are Earth 616. So if you are a Marvel Wiki person listening, I know that there is a lot of discussion about how to designate the lives of Moira Earthwise. They are all the Moira of Earth 616. Earth 616 has just been overwritten 10 times. Right. If, if you if you want to put a little Roman numeral with a power sign yeah, like above, Earth 616 above 616 Alpha or yeah, something. Yeah. Right. So the first life of Moira plays out very normally. She is born in Scotland. She marries a nice guy. She's a school teacher. She has some children and she dies. Then she's immediately reborn in the womb with complete perfect recall mm-hmm. of her entire life, which, by the way, is an existentially horrifying idea. Oh, yeah. And, and that she's had to do this over and over again is horrific. Yeah, yeah. Now, I do understand people who don't like this bit. It is implied that the reason she is the world's most brilliant geneticist is not because she is the smartest person in the world, as it was sort of previously implied, but rather because she builds on her research in every new life. Right. Well, I imagine it's a combination of both. She has to be pretty fucking smart to get anywhere she's, in the first place. She's done such an improbable number of things in X-Men exactly, history right. that this allows her to go from brilliant scientist to Marvel super scientist level scientist, like the Reed Richards tier of scientist. Yeah, I would say she's ahead of Reed at this point. Right. She is essentially, I don't read Avengers books, we know this about me, but they did toy with like a scientist supreme idea, right? To like balance right. out the sorcerer supreme. I think Moira is a pretty strong candidate if anybody knew she was alive. I mean, she has mastered death. Right, yeah. De- de- so... <laughs> defeating death is really the ultimate scientific achievement, and she alone in the Marvel Universe has figured it out. Right. So, the second life of Moira, she is, like, trying to figure out what the hell's up with her. She finally, when she's, like, in her 40s, sees Charles on TV declaring that he's a mutant, and presumably that is the event that takes place in New X-Men when he's possessed by Cassandra Nova. Right, but yeah, as, as many people have pointed out, not actually Charles talking. I would say it's unclear whether it happened in for the same life, reason, yeah. because I actually think Cassandra Nova may be an anomaly in this timeline, because otherwise you'd think Moira would have stopped Genosha. Right. I think we have to imagine that a lot of the really traumatic moments in X-Men history in Life 10 did not occur in previous lives. Only happened this time, right. That's part of what we'll get into after the character file, because there are moments where you're just like, did this happen before? Does she know it's coming? She doesn't have a script is the important thing. She only knows what has happened in the previous lives and everybody else behaves in generally the same way, but her actions create butterfly effects every time she does literally anything and it changes the whole trajectory of the world, which talk about an empowered position. Right. Again, like it's, it's a really... And narratively, this is really key. And I think it's what a lot of readers who are upset by this either don't see or don't like, which is that functionally, she's allowing the lives that she's lived to serve the same purpose that Days of Future Past used to serve Yes, for the X-Men, which is, this is the vision of all of the different ways that things can go wrong if we don't absolutely, positively get it right this time. Nail it this time. So yeah, Life 2, she sees Charles say he's a mutant on television. She's like, wow, okay, that must be what I am. She gets on a plane and the plane crashes into the ocean. Right. And she dies. Life three, she goes and finds Charles at Oxford. 
except she thinks he's a dick. Understandably. Yeah. So she's like, you know what? Fuck this guy. He's not my savior. And disgusted by the experience she's now had twice of being a fetus and then infant with full human knowledge of her past <laughs> lives. And like the children who will now never exist because she doesn't marry Mr. Cowan. Like it's really messed up. She decides this is like cancer and I need to cut it out of me. Right. So she spends her whole third life developing a cure for mutation, which she successfully creates as Kavita Rao will one day do. Right. As Hank McCoy will spend time trying to do. That's when Destiny finds her. And Destiny is the only precognitive powerful enough to get a sense of what's going on with Moira. Right. And tells her, this is a mistake. You need to try again and help your people this time. And by the way, you only get 10 of these, maybe 11, if you, if make, you make the, the right, right choice, choice at the very the end. end. Yeah. And then she has Pyro burn Moira to death slowly so that she'll remember what it feels like. What, what one <laughs> hell of a moment, by the way. Among the best X-Men scenes ever written. Yes. Truly incredible. Absolutely. The fourth life, Moira's like, all right, well, let's try this again. She goes and meets Xavier again when they're a little older, and she actually finds that he has chilled out into a nicer guy, and she actually falls in love with him. They get married. They start the X-Men. This is the life that confuses people, because there's a series of panels. This is where the lost decade joke happens. Yeah. There's a series of panels showing different eras of the X-Men as we recognize them. The Gifted Youngsters, the Years of Hate and Fear with the 70s X-Men, et cetera, et cetera. And then The Lost Decade, which shows us the Phoenix Five. Which, which, is, which is a very funny, puckish reference. Very funny. I'm surprised Marvel let that through, <laughs> frankly. It's very funny, though. So a lot of people seem to have thought that that was the life that we had previously been reading and that Krakoa is a new life. That's not the right. case because in Life 4... Her name is Moira Xavier. She's married to Charles and she helped him found the X-Men from the beginning and has right. always been there. And they're killed by Sentinels at the mansion eventually. The point of that life is that enough went similarly that she has a vague idea of things that might happen in this life, right. which has helped her prepare in this life for various events. Which may be part of a pre-plotted plan that already exists, or may just be preemptive cover in case they need to reconcile something in, in Moira's history that would be better explained by her having knowledge of, of, an, of, of a particular event that would occur. Correct. Then, Life 5, she goes to Charles as a teenager, opens her mind to him, radicalizes him, and they become violent separatists and start this mutant nation called Far Away, which is eventually destroyed by Sentinels. So the sixth life is the confusing one, because this is the one that doesn't get revealed to us until the end of Powers of Ten. Mm -hmm. But basically, in the sixth life, Moira figures out that mutants are the natural evolutionary response to humankind fading out, like the way that Morrison presented it, but that humanity refuses to become extinct and refuses to accept mutants as the next stage in its own evolution. Right. Sees them as a foreign threat and will never accept that. And so humanity instead chooses to become post-human, merge with artificial intelligence and with technology. Right. And become homo novissima. Humanity will use machines, will use technology. To exterminate mutants and become... To, to trigger a, a kind an, of an artificial, artificial evolution. evolution. In a different way. Yeah. Yeah. 
and eventually ascend and become part of the phalanx and part of the dominion and become a god. That's right. That's sort of the, the end goal, but that's a thousand years in the future. This is where we find it that Moira secretly has blood type E, the only other known person with blood type E being Wolverine. Mm-hmm. You know, he's immortal functionally because of his healing factor, and she's able to stay alive with blood transfusions from him all the way up until they see that final conclusion, and then he kills her and sends her back with that knowledge. Right. So in Life 7, knowing that humanity will always turn to AI and to machines to artificially evolve beyond mutants and exterminate mutants, Moira dedicates her life to exterminating every member of the Trask bloodline. Right. This is this is her ersatz X-Force life. Yes. She spends about a decade killing Bolivar Trask, his children, his brothers and sisters, his nieces and nephews, anyone named Trask or related to the Trasks, so that the Sentinels will never be invented. What she discovers, to her horror, is that the ascent of artificial intelligence is inevitable. It is not an invention. It is a discovery. It is like fire. There will always be a human being, whether it's a Trask or not, who develops the ability to create anti-mutant sentient weapons. There will always be somebody who harnesses this discovery. Whether it is a human, a member of the human species, is up for debate. Oh, mm, that's not how I read it, actually. Well, I think the way you read it is the way you're supposed to read it, because I think that's certainly how Moira, at the time, maybe now, interprets it. Well, it's what Moira thinks. Right, we'll see. Moira could be wrong. That's Moira's understanding. So, the Sentinels are created anyway, and they kill her again. Right. So then, in Life 8, she goes to Magneto, and she tells Magneto about all her past lives and convinces him she's telling the truth. They conquer America, establish the House of M, and... The X-Men band against them with the Avengers and the Fantastic Four and all those other heroes and defeat Magneto. Yeah. Moira is imprisoned and is killed trying to escape from prison. Life 9, because she is running out, (laughs) and at this point she has been reincarnated into utero with complete memories, perfectly recalling every moment. Eight times. She's deep in Bill Murray Groundhog's Day territory yeah, here. She's now like fully Groundhog Day lost her mind, right. which is fair. And I don't mean in the sense that she's literally insane, but the level of trauma that she's dealing with is yes. astonishing. And she's been told by the woman who burned her to death in Life 3 that she only has 10, 11 if she makes the right choice. And for right now, she feels like she doesn't have any idea where that would be right. because she, she has narrowed that down at not all. at all. Right. So in Life 9, she's like, all right, that didn't work with Magneto. But guess what? It turns out that the X-Men aren't necessarily a good answer either because this whole message of Charles's of integration and whatnot led them to get together with our enemies and destroy us. Mm -hmm. So Magneto doesn't work. Charles doesn't work. What am I going to do? So she wakes up Apocalypse from his slumber like a decade early. Somehow rescues the first horseman from Ammonth, which I imagine is something we'll eventually have to explore because Ten of Swords can't have happened because Saturnine, we'll get into this, but Saturnine presents a lot of issues for Moira that we'll get into. I have to say, the fact that Moira McTaggart and Opaluna Saturnine are now two of the most consequential people in the Marvel Universe is 
one hell of a thing. Thrilling to me. So somehow gets the original horseman back from Ammonth, murders Charles and Eric, and launches the Apocalypse War, which is basically like, it's like Age of Apocalypse, but they dominate the entire Earth. Right. And what this ends up creating is Nimrods. Nimrod was the super sentinel from the Days of Future Past timeline that came back in time and tried to kill Rachel and then did all kinds of yes. bad stuff. And eventually, don't worry about it, went through the Siege Powerless with the Master Mold and became Bastion. Doesn't matter. That's the point the where point you're allowed is... to check out on the history of <laughs> Nimrod. Yeah. In this timeline, the Nimrods come online because humans and machines form an alliance in this hundred-year apocalypse war. And... Almost all mutants are eventually exterminated. In the end, Wolverine manages to, with the help of a couple surviving mutants, including, notably, Cypher, who has become one with Krakoa, right. which implies that she figured out a lot of the Krakoa stuff in this life, which makes sense because Apocalypse has a history there. Mm -hmm. They managed to find details on when the Nimrod first came online and what the process was that led to the creation of the Nimrod Sentinels. So Wolverine kills Mother Akaba, who's Moira, and sends her back for the, as far as she knows, last time. Right. And that is where we are now. Because she winds up in the timeline we've always known but in House of X 2, we learn that the first time they met, she asked Charles to look into her head and see all of her lives. And he did. And everything that has happened since has been part of a huge chess game that she and Charles have played, eventually looping in Eric. Right. But not until after Uncanny 150. Correct. Which fixes a lot of problems. Right. <laughs> initially, I was like, Eric's been in on this the whole time. No, he doesn't. If you look back, they're talking to him. And they, and, they, and they do some very, very well done visual cues to tell you when that's happening. To let you know happening. when that's taking place in the Claremont run. Yeah. Eventually looping in Eric and they have been working behind the scenes together for the most part. Occasionally they've gone rogue from one another, but they've always come back to this ultimate goal of finding a way to prevent the inevitable destruction of mutant kind as far as Moira has perceived it. Right. So they've created the resurrection protocols for the first time. They have founded this mutant nation of Krakoa that cannot be genocided because they can resurrect people. So it's a new stage of the project she's tried several times with a bunch of new variables. We also find, and this is something where it's important to remember that she doesn't have a script. There are people who really don't like the notion that Moira married Joe McTaggart because of his genetic potential and intentionally created Proteus. Right. There are a couple reasons people don't like this. One, it makes Moira a much more morally ambiguous character, but I think that's part of what makes her interesting right. here and what makes this whole turn interesting. It's a lot less morally ambiguous than Life 9, where she becomes right. Apocalypse's bride and devastates the Earth. But I, but I think the bigger problem that people have is the notion that she may have known that Joe was going to be, frankly, abusive to her. That's the real, that's the thing people have pointed out, is that Joe, Joe is abusive. Yes. This is, this is the backstory of their marriage. This is the backstory of Proteus. Right. Joe is abusive and Kevin, Proteus, is born 
after he rapes Moira and beats her so severely that she's hospitalized for a week. Right. And that's the last time they ever see each other until the Proteus arc because she leaves him and she never tells him that she's pregnant and she has the baby in secret and all of that. People seem to be under the impression that Moira knew that would happen. And I don't think that's the case. I think, and there's nothing I think to it suggest is it. absolutely necessary to believe that she did not. And I don't, yeah, I don't I, think there's for a nothing moment to suggest that any it. of the X writers no. intended that to be the case. I think it's clearly not the case. There is a hint put forward in Moira's journal entries and the data pages in the last issue of Powers of Ten that maybe, maybe, maybe there was a strategic purpose behind the marriage and she was trying to create a child with genetic potential that would lead to the the execution of her plan. That does not mean that she knew who Joe was going to be or what he was going to do. Yeah, I think she found a guy who she identified that he was carrying the X gene or whatever in a specific way. She identified by looking at his blood samples. Who knows what she did? It's comics that their union could produce an Omega level reality warping child, which is what she and Charles needed. The two things they needed to complete the five essentially were the source of the eggs and a reality warper. Right. And then everything else was like, okay, we need someone who can manipulate time. We need someone who can heighten other mutant powers. And we need a healer, you know, and they need to be really powerful. But we need an Omega level reality warper. So I think that she chose Joe for that reason. Right. But she'd never met Joe. This is the first life in which she's ever been Moira McTaggart. That's right. Which is, again, why Moira X is a better designation for the character mm-hmm. now. Because she's had 10 lives, and in most of them, she's been Moira Kinross. In one of them, she was Moira Xavier. In one of them, she was Mother Akaba. In one of them, she was Moira Cowan. Right. And only in this one is she Moira McTaggart. I mean, and frankly, if, not, if, if we really adhered to the sliding time scale, she probably wouldn't have taken Joe's name, and she'd just be Dr. Moira Kinross. But right, it's, yeah. too, it's too late to do that. It was the 70s. Well, and, the, the, sli- the sliding time scale makes everything so tight now that it's possible that she just hasn't changed the paperwork since they broke up. Like, it's been, it's been, it's been two and a half weeks, so... What I think is that she won the Nobel Prize as Dr. Moira McTaggart, and so professionally, it doesn't make sense to change her name back. Right. My sister's getting married in May, and she's also about to finish medical school. And she's like, I need to get this all in a row because I need to change my... She wants to take her fiancé's name, but she wants to do it before she gets her medical license because apparently changing your name when you have a medical license is a really annoying process. So my guess is Moira changed her name, then became one of the most important people in genetics and was like all right this would be confusing with my publishing history so i'm not gonna although honestly like if 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 she decided to do it as a fuck you to joe because she's gonna get some good out of his prominent political career while hating him i respect that i respect that well that's the other thing he's a very prominent member of parliament right yeah no so i don't think that there is any way on earth that she knew he would abuse her or that she knew that he would rape her or any of that i agree And I don't think that's suggested in the story. So for people who are feeling weird about that, I I just want to reassure you, like, I don't think there's anything in the text that would suggest that. I think that she is still a victim of Joe's violence and it has nothing to do, like, all she knew was this looks like a partner that might be able to produce an Omega level reality warper with me. And she probably actually loved him. I'm sure she found several different candidates that could have done it. The one that's actually more fucked up is the implication that she tells Xavier to shack up with his patient, Gabby Hall. But the thing is, that relationship was always so fucked up. It's it's not like she just fucked up the Gabby Haller relationship. No, and I think that what happened there is like, if I were to go back and guess, I bet Xavier had already brought Gabrielle Haller out of her catatonia and... 
and they ran some tests or whatever and Moira's always in the background lurking and she was like ah Charles this woman could produce an heir right. that would have reality warping powers and he was just like that's more Irish isn't it I'm bad at this <laughs> And he was just like, oh, score, because I'm super hot for her anyway. Right. If you go back and read the stories, the connection between them is very real. It's very inappropriate because he's her doctor. Horrifyingly inappropriate. I do believe that Moira was in love with Joe and that Charles was in love with Gabrielle. Yeah. But I think that they allowed themselves to take it to the next level because of Moira's research. So I don't think that it complicates those relationships any more than they were already complicated and this and this is really the key thing to remember in all of these situations which is that even though moira has lived all of these lives and she has a general idea now of what she needs to do she's still making it up as she goes along as she goes along and so so is charles and so is magneto they're not play acting she's not having them act out things that have already happened she doesn't know what's going to happen that's why when people say things like how could Moira allow Jean to become Dark Phoenix? It's like, for all we know, this is the first time Jean has become Dark Phoenix. Right. If anything, it just lends greater urgency to her because now she finds out that Jean actually has the power to summon forth this reality-destroying force of the universe. Like, this is the last chance we have. Why is this happening now? (laughs) Why is this happening now? Right. Whereas in Life 4, we do see the Phoenix Five for the Lost Decade joke, but that could have happened any millions of numbers of ways that have nothing to do with Jean. So when Jean comes back and is like, I'm the Phoenix now, Moira's probably like, fuck, well, I've seen the Phoenix. (laughs) All right, Lorna, go to the kitchen. I got to do some tests. And she does some tests while Havoc and Lorna are like off doing whatever it is they do when they're not on page for years at a time. And there's it's an amazing it's in the first issue of the Proteus arc Mm -hmm. where she's like testing Jean's power levels in this chamber. And Jean's like. Moira, are we almost done? I gotta tell you, this is becoming kind of a drag. And the way that John Byrne draws that panel, Jean is so scary. And Moira is terrified of her. And it only becomes funnier now, in retrospect, to know that Moira absolutely knows what the Phoenix Force is. Yeah. She's trying to figure out. She's and like, this is oh consistent. God, how is this happening? And this is consistent with the story. Moira is trying to figure out whether Jean, as a human, can contain. Right. The Phoenix. And the fact that she once saw five mutants possessed by the Phoenix in a previous life go crazy, presumably. Yeah, or like, like you, have to, you have to imagine now that Moira is having this moment of, because like, okay, okay, this looks bad, but wait, wait, wait. Maybe we can turn this around. Maybe this can be a good thing. Jane is the most powerful telepath we've ever seen. And now she's the Phoenix, Charles. So we got to <laughs> deal with this. What are you going to do? So it's not good is the answer. That's the thing is like, similarly, I think Cassandra Nova is an anomaly in this timeline. I think that makes the most sense because I don't think Moira let Genosha happen. Well, actually, Charles is older than Moira. Right. So Cassandra Nova can't be an anomaly entirely. But perhaps this is the first time that the energy being that is Cassandra Nova managed to reconstitute a body for herself on the sewer wall or whatever. Right. Like, like, clearly that is some kind of universal fluke that's not supposed to happen. Right. And it's easy enough to explain these things because Proteus isn't supposed to happen. Right. Proteus is something new. And if Proteus is new, then lots of other things can be new. Similarly, Onslaught is new. Onslaught, we learn, and I was stunned, and this is really Hickman being additive rather than destructive, right? I was stunned by the fact that Onslaught was mentioned at all, because most writers just don't want to touch it, right? Right. But the implication is that Onslaught actually arose from 
Charles's psyche being fractured from looking repeatedly into Moira's psyche and all of her previous lives. Right. This butterfly effect that Moira ends up having on the other characters to whom she gives her knowledge and shares in this project. And that, you know, that's only amplified by a little reference that she makes in House of X to the observer effect, this notion that just by knowing that she's having this effect on the universe, she may be changing the outcome. So it's impossible to control it to the extent that she wants to as an objective scientist. Right. And she also needs, because she doesn't have any powers herself, she needs people like Charles and Eric to listen to her. Right. So, for example, when they go behind her back and bring in Sinister, she's really pissed. She can't control these people. She's trying, she she's trying to rein in these unruly children who it took her enough years just to get them both on board with her project because they both bitterly, bitterly resisted it. The Sinister thing is particularly interesting because in a very clever choice, there's also been people who are like, how can they work with Mr. Sinister? He was a Nazi. Here's the thing that they do very cleverly in House of X. A clone of Mr. Sinister kills Mr. Sinister and replaces him. Right. So anything that Mr. Sinister did before, and again, we can time it based on visual signifiers and other things. I would say before like the mid 90s, anything Mr. Sinister did, the previous Sinister did. Right. It's a good way of explaining why Sinister's personality changed ever since Kieran Gillen wrote him. Why do his motivations seem to be all over the place? Why does he have six or seven different personalities over the course of his character existence? Here's why. And let's just hand wave the Dr. Mengele's assistant bit that honestly we can do without if we're going to use him as a character. Like we just don't need that. But the thing that's fun about it is also like not fun for Moira, but like adds to the ticking clock feeling is Moira realizes that this clone sinister is a chimera. Right. Which means that the chimeras, which are a problem that led to the big mess in Life 9, are now something Sinister has developed like 50 years ahead of schedule. Which means that things are accelerating faster in this timeline. Yeah. So she has even less time to make it work. That's where we're left. The precogs thing, that's another thing that seems to confuse people. I think it's multifaceted. I think Moira doesn't want Destiny back because she's afraid of Destiny. I think there's that Mm. to begin with. But also what she says is, we always lose. And if a precog that powerful can tell everyone that we are going to lose, they may lose faith in us. And like I said, she needs these people to listen to her or nothing will work. There is also a third possibility here, which is we know even in those journal entries at the end of Powers of Ten, there is information being hidden from us. Yes, yeah, stuff that's redacted. Information that is still being hidden from Xavier and Magneto. That opens up the possibility that we do not know the full extent of what Moira's plan here is. Right. We have seen a big chunk of it, but we have not seen all of it. Krakoa can't be the end game. Right. She must have something else Particularly given what she knows about survival through singularities, and given what she knows about the right choice that she needs to make in the end, she has something cooking here that she's not, she's playing close to the vest. My prediction is that to make the right choice, she needs Destiny's help. And she'll have to bring her back eventually. Oh, Destiny, please. I mean, we talk about Chekhov's guns in this, in no, of this course. run. That is the biggest of all the Chekhov's guns. Of course, we know Destiny's coming back, but I think that Moira, in her arrogance, doesn't realize that she can't succeed without Destiny's help. That's my prediction as to where that storyline is going. Right. Anyway, point is, that's how the retcon works. If you don't want to worry about it, you don't have to worry about it, and nothing about previous X-Men history has actually changed. You can read all of those stories without thinking about Moira for one second. And 
in the new era, Moira is mostly off stage because only Charles and Eric are allowed to know she's alive. So it is nothing more than a way to push the franchise in a new direction that honors everything that came before it. It's a plot device, but it's a plot device that, unlike ways she's previously been used as a plot device, puts her as a character at the center of the narrative, which I think is very cool. Right. And I think that's a good moment now that we've (laughs) gone into vast detail to pause for the Cerebro character file on Myra McTaggart. This is not going to be super long because I'm not going to go into the lives in a ton of detail because we just did that. So otherwise, it'll be about Moira's publication history, because obviously that's a very recent element of Moira's publication history, even if it fits into the continuity earlier. And then we will come back for more with Zach Rabaroff. We'll talk about our favorite Moira storylines, our least favorite Moira storylines, and answer some questions from listeners like you. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Dr. Moira McTaggart, born Moira Kinross, was for decades the most prominent human ally of the X-Men. Created by writer Chris Claremont and artist Dave Cockrum, she was initially presented as simply an old flame of Charles Xavier's before it was revealed she was a Nobel Prize-winning geneticist specializing in mutation. After her death and the climax of the Legacy Virus storyline, the character went largely unused for almost 20 years. In 2019, writer Jonathan Hickman dramatically reimagined the character as Moira X, an immortal mutant with the power of reincarnation. In this new role, Moira, whose name, after all, is the ancient Greek word for fate, is the primary architect of mutant kind's future. Introduced in 1975's X-Men 96, Night of the Demon, Chris Claremont's first issue as both scripter and plotter, Moira is initially presented as the Widow McTaggart, the X-Men's new housekeeper. Sean Cassidy, the X-Men Banshee, is immediately taken with her surprising youth and beauty, and she proves herself a capable shot when a demon attacks the mansion and she defends herself with a machine gun. Over the next year, the reader learns she was once engaged to Xavier, but their romance ended abruptly. Initially, the implication is that Xavier wronged her somehow. But later stories will instead reveal she broke up with him without explanation while he was deployed overseas in the Korean War. Their relationship in the present is platonic, and she begins dating Sean Cassidy. In X-Men 104, Moira is revealed to be a celebrated genetic scientist with a mutant research facility on Muir Island off the coast of Scotland. The facility is also a secret prison for uncontrollable evil mutants. It turns out that Moira has been taking care of Magneto, who was de-aged into a baby by a powerful being called Alpha between the 60s book's cancellation and the 70s relaunch. Don't worry about it. The Shi'ar agent Davan Shakari, aka Eric the Red, restores Magneto to adulthood, and Magneto battles the new team of X-Men and nearly destroys them. In the final moments of the issue, we see that the battle has breached one of the mutant containment cells, a cell containing someone called Mutant X. Moira is a recurring character over the next few years, and provides a home on Muir Island for former X-Men Havoc and Polaris to recover after Shikari brainwashes them. The character gets her first story as a protagonist in 1979's X-Men 125, There's Something Awful on Muir Island, which begins the famous Proteus arc. While running tests on Jean Grey, who has become the cosmic-empowered Phoenix, Moira realizes that Mutant X has escaped from containment. It's soon revealed that Mutant X, who calls himself Proteus, is her son, Kevin McTaggart, an omnipotent reality-warping mutant limited only by his need to possess host bodies. The bodies burn out as they're used, and Kevin absorbs his victims' psyches as he kills them. We learn Kevin was conceived after a violent assault by Moira's estranged husband, Member of Parliament Joe McTaggart. In the 20 years since, Moira has kept Kevin a secret from Joe, and has presented herself as a widow. As she's a prominent scientist with a Nobel Prize, Joe finds their marriage politically advantageous and refuses to grant her a divorce. He's on track to become the next Prime Minister of Scotland. 
Moira attempts to kill Kevin with a sniper rifle, but is stopped by Scott Summers, the X-Man Cyclops, as the X-Men do not kill. This gives Kevin the opportunity to continue hopping bodies. Moira realizes he intends to kill his father, and goes to warn Joe, holding him at gunpoint to keep him at bay. She reveals the existence of their son, and Joe is furious. Shortly thereafter, he's possessed by Kevin, who absorbs his father's hatred of Moira. Once Joe's body starts burning out, Kevin tries to take Moira's body, but he's apparently slain by Pyotr Rasputin, the X-Man Colossus. Sean is distressed that Moira kept the existence of her husband and son from him, but he loves her enough to look past it. Since he's apparently lost his sonic powers after a battle with the villain Moses Magnum, he retires from the X-Men and moves to Muir Island to be with Moira full-time. In 1982's Marvel graphic novel number 4, The New Mutants, Moira adopts the teenage mutant Rain Sinclair, who will later be called Wolfsbane, after rescuing the girl from a religious lynch mob. With the X-Men believed dead during the Brood Saga, don't worry about it right now, Moira encourages Xavier to find new students and helps him build a squad of new mutants, including Rain. Moira remains on Muir Island and is shocked when one of Xavier's other ex-lovers, Gabrielle Haller, contacts her to reveal that Xavier fathered a son with her. The boy, David Haller, who will later be called Legion, is an incredibly powerful mutant, but suffers from profound dissociative psychosis. Moira eventually convinces Gabrielle to let Xavier learn of David's existence, and ends up at the mansion for a time trying to help treat him. When a reformed Magneto takes over at the school, Moira assists him with the New Mutant Squad. She's later present as the doctor-in-residence during the 1986 franchise-wide event Mutant Massacre, in which the sewer-dwelling Morlocks are slaughtered by the evil mutants called the Marauders. When the Marauder called Sabretooth attacks the mansion, Moira is saved by the quick thinking of telepathic houseguest Betsy Braddock, who's rewarded for her bravery by being admitted to the X-Men as Psylocke. Following the massacre, several of the surviving Morlocks accompany Moira and Sean back to Muir Island, including their former leader Callisto, who becomes Moira's bodyguard. Moira also ends up caring for the X-Men Shadowcat and Nightcrawler, who are grievously injured in the massacre. After the apparent deaths of the active-duty X-Men in the 1988 event Fall of the Mutants, Moira and Sean end up establishing a team of X-Men on Muir Island to defend against an attack by the Reavers. They soon fall under the influence of the Shadow King, an ancient evil-possessing entity that… honestly, don't worry about it. Reunited with the X-Men, Moira becomes the subject of controversy when Magneto discovers she had tampered with his genetic code back during the time when he was regressed to infancy. Moira admits she attempted to alter Magneto's morality on a genetic level, which outrages him and sends him fully back to a life of villainy. It turns out, however, that Moira's experiment had been a failure, and all of Magneto's decisions had truly been his own. This was the final story of Chris Claremont's 16-year tenure on the X-Men. In the 90s, Moira is mostly in the background attempting to find a cure for the legacy virus, a highly infectious and invariably fatal autoimmune disease affecting only mutants. She and Rain eventually join Excalibur, the British counterparts of the X-Men, as she continues her research. Somehow, Moira becomes the first and only human to contract the legacy virus. She refuses to give up hope and continues working on a cure as much as she can in isolation. In Chris Claremont's brief return to the flagship title in 2000, Moira is mortally wounded in an attack on Muir Island by the mutant terrorist Mystique, who wants to weaponize the legacy virus against humans. But before she dies, Moira is able to figure out how Mystique's altered form of the virus can be used to synthesize a cure. She dies in Charles Xavier's arms after telepathically transmitting this knowledge. In 2005, the Ed Brubaker story Deadly Genesis profoundly retcons Moira and Xavier's relationship. It's revealed that Moira had her own group of students in a facility a few hours north of the Xavier School, and that she did not train these students for combat. When the 60s X-Men were captured by the living island Krakoa, Xavier did not, as we have always believed, immediately form the 70s team of X-Men seen in Giant Size X-Men No. 1. Instead, he went to Moira's facility and convinced her to let him telepathically train her students in combat, compressing months and months of lessons into a few hours. 
The students were thrilled to become X-Men, but were apparently immediately slaughtered upon arriving on Krakoa. Xavier wiped the memories of everyone who had ever known them, including Moira. This is all revealed by a tape Moira made before her memories were wiped, which is found in the ruins of the Muir Island facility by Sean. Sean's then killed by Vulcan, one of Moira's students who had secretly survived. Don't worry about it. In the 2011 event Chaos War, Moira and Sean are briefly resurrected to aid the X-Men. They return to the grave when the event concludes. In the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by Jonathan Hickman, Moira is completely reimagined with a wide-ranging and cosmically significant retcon. We learn that she has secretly been a mutant all along, with a passive and naturally hidden power. Whenever she dies, the timeline rewinds to her gestation in utero, and she retains perfect recall of everything that transpired in her previous life. The reader learns of her nine previous lives, in which mutant kind has been invariably exterminated by human bigots through the use of evolving artificial intelligence like the Sentinel robots. In her tenth and potentially final life, the one we've been reading all this time, Moira enlisted Xavier and Magneto to her cause, and has worked in secret for decades to build toward the mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. She developed resurrection protocols that can bring any mutant back from the dead, and faked her death using a prototype Shi'ar golem designed early in that process. Now, from her shadowy no-space beneath Krakoa, Moira X quietly steers the fate of her species. X-Men, X-Men! Welcome back to the 10th life of Moira X, currently in progress. Zach, what are your favorite Moira tales? So, Moira, as you mentioned, is a tricky character because there are very few stories to which she is absolutely central. Mm -hmm. She is the quintessential constant supporting character. You know, in, in some of the most prominent cases where she is central, they're not actually good stories. They're not actually <laughs> stories that I would say I'd recommend unless you're just in it to find out the really significant moments in the life of Moira X. When is that panel you posted on Twitter once? I couldn't remember what issue it's from. There's a panel where you see Moira's bulletin board, and there's a post-it that says, if Irene calls, I'm not here. And that obviously is not on purpose, but it's hilarious now oh, that we know of her absolutely lifelong rivalry with Destiny. The, one of the most fun games now to play is going through all the moments of Moira's past history and figuring out the most ridiculous scenes and the most over-the-top scenes where she's covering for the fact that she is an immortal mutant. Right. So that, that particular panel comes from one of the last issues that Claremont did uh, of New Mutants, right? Yeah, it's before the Simonson changeover. Right, right. And she's she's hanging out at X-Mansion during that time, taking care of all of the New Mutants because Magneto has just taken over after Charles left into space. Right. And so clearly they've picked up the phone from Freedom Force a few times and let on while she frantically <laughs> waves her arms and tells them not to say not it. Not here. If Irene calls them, not here. That's so good. And and and, and, so and, and similarly, there's a great moment during the Mutant Massacre when Sabretooth is rampaging through the mansion and about to kill Psylocke. Yeah, I love this panel. And Moira is insisting... To Sharon Friedlander. Yeah, that like, there's nothing we can do. We're just two We're humans. We're just normal just humans. Two of us normal what could humans we do? here. Now, what's great is the stakes of that. Because, you know, it's already... That issue is incredible already. But the idea that Psylocke didn't just save the X-Men's friend Moira McTaggart right. and their friend Sharon Friedlander and the Morlocks who had survived and were recuperating in hospital. She actually also saved 
the entire timeline because if Sabretooth had yeah. broken through and killed Moira McTaggart, and there, the whole and there, timeline and there, would have started over. And there's more, too, because remember, Sabretooth at that moment was working for Mr. Sinister. So yes. if, if Xavier had already recruited Sinister by then... I don't think he has. I don't think he has. But if he had, this would be Moira thinking, fuck you, Xavier, I told you this was a I mistake. told you and, and, not and if, to and recruit if Essex. It, it adds a layer to why Moira is so horrified by the notion that this guy of all guys would be recruited. Like, he literally just almost ended time forever he literally just almost ended everything by sending his monster to attack the mansion so maybe not that guy so all of all of that said there are stories that i think are really worth reading to understand moira's significance my favorite one that becomes insane now is age of apocalypse oh yeah moira on the human council Married to Bolivar Trask. Right. She's working against mutants there. My theory now is that Age of Apocalypse Moira is sabotaging the Human High Council from within. That would be a fun story for the Moira book. I think we have to assume that's the case. Yeah. Because because there's nothing about Age of Apocalypse that would negate all of her previous lives. She still lived through all of this. No, it's the 10th life. It just gets rewritten. Right. And so she's still running this deep cover operation. Like now she has to come up with a completely different plan. It's like, okay, Xavier's dead. Did not see that coming. Oh, Xavier died before we ever met. So now I have to figure out something else. Who can I get on my side? And then she never manages to connect with Magneto for whatever reason. So she just goes to apocalypse again is what i would assume because she's like all right apocalypse read my mind here's what we did last time and it didn't work i rarely would support going back to the age of apocalypse to tell more stories but if there's one untold tale of the age of apocalypse i want to hear yeah yeah because i don't think that the revisits of age of apocalypse have been very good overall however that's a story it would be fun to read in a moira anthology book that i hope eventually does happen right yeah, so what what you were saying is there are stories that you think are worth reading to get a sense of the character. Yeah. I would say number one for me is Proteus. The Proteus saga. Yeah. And, you know, we should stick on here that there there it it is it is worthy of a content warning because the the basis of the story is explicit spousal abuse and strongly implied sexual assault leading to pregnancy yeah yeah and of the marriage of of Moira and Joe McTaggart but out of this and this is very typical of Claremont comes not a woman who's used as a victim to motivate men but a woman who we now understand the motivation and the strength that's been driving her in every scene that we've seen her in X-Men up to that point uh, and this is a hard-nosed character who shows up in the Proteus saga. Well, that's the thing is, I mean, and now in her first issue, she did use that machine gun to try and right. kill the Ngarai demon. So we know that she's tough. In this issue, though, I mean, she knocks Cyclops on his ass. She tries to kill her own son right. with a sniper rifle. She is absolutely ready to shoot Proteus with that rifle. Yes, because she's like, I've lost control of this situation and he needs to die. Right. And the X-Men are too good they're not going to do that so it falls to me this by the way if you want to read it is x-men 125 to 128 it is literally right before the dark phoenix saga it leads into the dark phoenix saga directly the first issue of the dark phoenix saga god spare the child which introduces kitty and emma is 129 and when i first read the dark phoenix saga i was confused because it opens the trade that we would be reading back yeah. then opens with them all on Muir Island, leaving Muir Island. After after this very difficult this experience, very traumatic they just experience had, yeah. they've all had, right? And like Banshee is like, 
well, I've lost me powers, so I'm staying here. Right. And, you know, they're all just like, all right, bye, Banshee, and bye, they, And they're all and flying back on the Blackbird looking absolutely just, like, dazed just and wrecked. horrified. Like, they yeah. had the worst day of their lives, and I didn't know what had happened, right? So, yeah, it's interesting on a couple levels. It's also, if we're talking about... I mean, the, the rape element of it is actually really central because it's also where Jason Wingard first starts mm-hmm. manipulating Gene. That stuff is also pretty disturbing. So, yeah, general content warning on this story... But it is a very, very good story. It is a very, very good story. It is a story about Moira, which there aren't that many of. And I always find it interesting when a mother character is allowed to be hard, is allowed Mm -hmm. to be cold. It's something that a lot of male writers, I think, don't allow mothers to be unless they're evil. Right. And Moira is a good guy who is a mom, but who has been a bad mom in some ways. And who fundamentally is willing to put right. the world above the life of her child. And while she has largely by necessity been a bad mom, right. partly by some bad choices that she's made, she is aware of how terrible life has been for Kevin. Right. And she feels horrible about it, but she doesn't... Everything she does is in light of that guilt and not because the guilt is forcing her to do bad things. This used to be... The explanation for why Moira is so committed to the study of mutation. Yeah, yeah. And it works to a point. It works to a point then. I do think that 15 years after Proteus, it started to get a little bit like, okay, why are you still sacrificing everything right, like, why, for why this? Are you, why are you living under the shadow of this? Right, yeah. But, you know, losing a child can do that to somebody. Mm-hmm. I reread Proteus for this episode, and what's really striking to me in it is first, like I said, the way that Claremont gives Moira agency throughout and lets her be a really flawed, complicated, tough character. But also the way that it writes Kevin as fundamentally childlike in a way that makes it very sad. Yeah. At the same time that it's a terrifying story. It's a lot more gruesome than Marvel comics of the time were typically allowed to be. A lot of innocent people die horribly in the Proteus. Yeah, it's, it's not the sort of thing that you would generally see right at the beginning of the 80s under Jim Shooter. Right. It's, this is 79 even. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's really kind of wild. The way that you see him evolve in his psychopathy like the way that he has had nothing to do but contemplate his fate for all these years. And then as soon as he's free, when he possesses people, he gets all of their memories. So his psyche becomes fractured very quickly because he has all of these people inside him. And then he only becomes aggressive toward Moira when he absorbs his own father. And, and, And it's in that final stage of the story that we get into this very strange and very Claremontian Oedipal situation. Yeah, well, it's very disturbing. I mean, he's he essentially... He says, you're mind, body, and soul. Yeah. I mean, there's this very, like, the implication is that he's going to use Joe's body to do something bad to her. And as in any Greek tragedy at that moment, we know that he's going to die. Yes. Because there's no way that his his mind having been destroyed. To that level, right. Having absorbed the mind of his sexually abusive father, he's not going to go on after this. This is it for him. Yeah, and he says to Moira, I have all of father's memories now, meaning I remember the experience right, right. of abusing you. It's really, really distressing. And then... His ultimate goal is to take Moira's body because he believes that he may be able to 
stay in it. Right. The idea that it's like a literal return to the womb, right? But he thinks that maybe their genetic structure or whatever, like he won't burn it out. Right. And he's prevented from doing that before it can happen. It's just, it's really good. It's really alarming. And it is the definitive story about Moira as an individual outside of her relationship to Charles, is what I would say. So, I mean, if if you're going to pick one defining story for the character of Moira, even post-retcon, I think that's probably the one. Because, again, this is something that never happened in one of her previous lives. So everything that happens in the Proteus story, she's flying without Annette. Like, she doesn't know what the hell she's doing. Now... It's it's not anywhere near on par with the original story, but there is a sequel of sorts to this in yes. a classic X-Men backup in classic X-Men number 36, which is by Fabian Nicieza, which is a very interesting story in light of the Moira retcon. Yes. Because it is it it's told through dual narrations of Moira and Banshee on your island as she considers the notion of resurrecting Proteus. She has she has, she thinks figured out a process that will allow her to reconstitute his body and mind using his power yeah in a way that will make him stable and not broken and destructive as he was before right and she needs to decide is she going to bring him back to life in the context of this single story it's a nice simple little morality play it's a rumination on grief right and she convinces her to move forward to, to move forward with life instead of trying to bring back the past and that's that in retrospect respect it is now a fascinating test run right at krakoan resurrection the fact that she knows proteus's power if she does the right thing scientifically could rebuild proteus from scratch so all she has really decided here is not to rush the process but she has filed this away in the back of her head it's not going away because she ends up using that power as part of the five Right. right It's interesting to think if we're interested in Banshee as a character, how he would feel if and when he knew about what Moira has done. That's the million dollar question, right? Is Banshee and Rain? Absolutely. Those are the most interesting questions. And this is what, if you think that this destroyed Moira as a character, this is the thing that is true. She has deceived and betrayed those two people who she loves retroactively for many 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 years banshee certainly rain to an extent she she has hid the truth from rain i have no doubt that her love and affection for rain is absolutely genuine i think her love and affection for sean is also genuine i think that there's a there's a little bit of a difference in that well rain is her adopted child it is different right and there was no reason at the time that rain had to know everything she was just a kid that was growing up with with sean he's an x-man you know but once she fakes her death with the golem and rain goes through all of that untold suffering grieving And, and, and she knew she would yeah that's really distressing i think that What you have to accept is that Moira has been through multiple lifetimes, has loved many people, some of whom no longer exist because of actions she's taken in this timeline. I mean, I mentioned in the Havoc episode that I'm generally opposed to storylines where characters are given children in an alternate timeline and then the children get erased because I think it's a lot of baggage to put on a character and I don't think it's ever really dealt with. In this case... The Cowan children from Moira's first life, I think, are very important. Yeah. They're the only children, it seems, Moira ever has until Life 10. And it's not simply 
swept up and put in a bag. It's not something we can brush away. Yeah. The baggage is the whole character. Mm -hmm. The fact that she has the burden of these many lives resting on her shoulders. The fact that if she doesn't succeed, all of it will have been for nothing. And the fact that she has killed countless people through lifetimes yeah. in the pursuit of this goal. The reason I like it is because it's true to the way Moira is presented in the Proteus arc. Mm -hmm. She is willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that the world is saved in whatever sense. She she has had to learn to break her own heart over and over again in the service of what needs to be done. And will kill her own children if she has to. Yeah. I think that that is really interesting and poignant and is, again, something that I think is rarely afforded to a female character. And it feels like it builds on the Proteus arc in that way. She's now the mother of mutant kind, right? Mother Akaba on some level. Right. Which, by the way, I don't... I, I, this, this is probably an accent, but I think it's actually really interesting because Moira, the idea of her as a gun-wielding, tough British woman is Claremont's mother. His mother served as a gunner in the RAF yep. during World War II. It's part of why he loves pilots. Right. He always has lady pilots and things. I, I think I think on a real level, there is Claremont's idealized vision of a mother figure is of the no-nonsense woman who can pick up a gun and fire it off and not offer an apology for it. And on that level, Moira always has been even when she was a human, the mother of the mutants. She is the mother of the X-Men. I would be remiss if I didn't point out that when Claremont decided to create an ideal mother for a happy ending for Cyclops, mm. he created Madeline Pryor, who is a pilot who mm -hmm. knows her way around a gun. That's right. He likes a woman who can fly a plane and shoot a gun. And it all does, on some level, go back a little bit to the Avengers and Emma Peel and Kathy Gale yeah. and those characters, because obviously that show was a big influence on him. I think that arc is really worth reading because it is the soul of the character. And that is the soul that I think Hickman has magnified into something bigger. The reveal of her essentially as like retroactively the mother of mutant kind who is kind of cold and distant and making tough choices. It reminds me a lot of a reveal in the final season of Battlestar Galactica, which I'm not going to <laughs> say because it's something that if you've never watched that show, I don't want to spoil for you. But uh, that's another character I really, really, really love for similar reasons. <laughs> the idea of the mother of the species not necessarily being a nurturer, I think, is interesting it also is sort of the point of Celine, right yeah there's a couple of characters like that like Celine is the foremother of all mutants but is a parasite who wants to eat them right i mean literally she's introduced like trying to kill her granddaughter and again it's very greek it's very mythological well with Celine, literally yeah well yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes he loves that stuff and that's part of why x-men becomes so baroque in its drama, so grand mm -hmm. in a way that superhero comics didn't used to be. So yeah, I think that's worth reading for sure. I think that it is worth reading the Chris Claremont and Bob McCloud New Mutants graphic novel number four yeah. that introduces all of those characters. It establishes her relationship with Rain. It establishes that she is central to Xavier recruiting the New Mutants and to their training. It becomes retroactively interesting now to think at the time, it's during the Brood Saga, Charles and Moira think the X-Men are dead. Yeah. 
So he's like in mourning and she's like, all right, but we need new yeah, students. No, push forward. We don't have a choice. <laughs> we don't have time. I've watched them die a whole bunch of times. Yes, like, we yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, some of us have replayed this moment before. Let's yeah. just go forward. We got to keep going. What are some of your other favorites? So beyond this, we are we are definitely in territory where Moira is playing supporting character. Yes. But nevertheless, I still think it is important to read those first three issues of Adjectiveless X-Men by yes, Claremont I and agree. Jim Lee. Because here we are introduced to an important retcon involving Magneto, where we learn that while Magneto was reduced to infancy... By Alpha, don't worry about it. Yeah, no, you don't. You don't need to read Len Wein's Defenders. I mean, do if you want to, but... But you don't have to. You really you don't, don't. need to. But while he was being kept ostensibly for safekeeping on your island, Moira was in fact tampering with his genetic code in a way to prevent the acts of evil that defined his Silver Age personality prior to that. And Magneto flips out. And here's what's important. This would have been before the House of X retcon establishes they right. recruited him right. in this timeline. So what happens in the story is Eric is like, everything I did with the X-Men, my reformation, my leading your teams of students, all of that happened because this woman tampered with my mind yeah. and it triggers his return to evil in a grand way. Now, the ending of that story is deliberately ambiguous as to whether or not Moira's experimenting was successful. Oh, I think it's pretty clear that it wasn't. I think I think that's Claremont's intention. I think there was editorial pressure that made him leave it a little bit vague because well, I think Bob Harris wanted that to be the case. Bob Harris wanted it to be the case, but I, I don't know. I literally just reread this. I think it's clear that what Claremont is telling us, nudge, nudge, and wing, wing. But listen, this is Claremont's last story. Right. So, you know, after this, they take it in all kinds of directions. And of course, that tracks with the fact that he's been you know, a hero to an antihero ever since. Right. It's also important for Moira's character because if you're going to reveal something that sinister about Moira, you have to have her at least go, it didn't work. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> but what's interesting about it now, looking back, is why would Moira have done that? And I think that it's because in her past life where she did link up with Magneto... Mm -hmm. He went to the extreme terroristic. Yeah, he, en place. he ends that story as Silver Age Magneto. He was still yes. very much, and so in she's Lee like, Kirby "Well, mode. we need to bring him on board, but it would be nice if I could fine tune him a little so that he doesn't do that." Yeah, she she is trying to tinker with Magneto to get him on board with Project Krakoa, and it makes retroactively the story from X Men One to Three in ninety one more interesting because. Yeah. The level of betrayal that Magneto is experiencing, it's not just about the fact that he led the X-Men and all that. It's about, I've been in on this thing with you, right, Moira, and now I think I went along with it because you made me. And it demonstrably improves the remainder of his appearances in the 90s, which otherwise are just a, which otherwise a don't real make any editorial sense. driven regression. Right, it's just, where he's he just evil now. forgets about everything he was during the 80s. Now, now it's like having having learned about this betrayal on the part of his two collaborators on this Krakoa project. He's like, fuck them. He's off board again. Yeah, he's done. He's going back to villainy. It makes that make so much more sense. And it also makes it easy to then explain him coming back on board after the destruction of Genosha. Yeah, yeah. 
And after Moira is dead, as far as he knows. So he's like, okay, well, she's out of the way. I guess I won this war. I imagine he finds out pretty quickly that she's alive. Right. He might not know in Excalibur Volume 3 when he and Xavier are rebuilding Genosha. Yeah. That's the thing there that's interesting. Part of it comes down to like when the Sinister story happens, which I think must happen in the 90s. Yeah. Like that must be during one of his little bit less evil times in the mid 90s. Yeah. It allows for us to hand wave a lot of things about Magneto that have not made sense. Mm -hmm. So that's very useful. And particularly once they retcon out Zorn Magneto, it makes his return to heroism post-Genosha make a lot of sense because if he had stayed with Charles and Moira maybe Moira's knowledge would have been able to prevent right. the genocide of Genosha. Having broken with them, he decided he would pursue his project of mutant independence on his own. He doesn't need these two people who have flatly betrayed him. And it leads to the genocide of like 95% of the mutant population. Right. And the kind of genocidal tragedy that he had sworn his entire life never, never to again. happen again. Right. Having seen that, he decides he now has no choice but to re-sign on to this project. And I think that that is very useful. So yeah, yeah, that storyline is definitely worth reading. I... I don't know if I recommend the Muir Island saga. Yeah, this is one of those things. I will say it's fun. When the X-Men die in Dallas... In Fall of the Mutants, Moira and Banshee start this squad of Muir Island X-Men that's like all of the supporting characters with nothing to do. And I personally enjoy it. It's very short-lived, yeah. but it's like them, Polaris with her new huge Lorna powers, Alessandra Stewart, yeah. Sharon Friedlander and Tom Corsi, Forge, I think, for a minute. Right. And other key supporting character who's a human who just pops up randomly as the storyline <laughs> requires her. Amanda Sefton. That's right. Oh, and Sunder, the Morlock. Sunder, who, if you confuse him on the cover with Strong Guy, you are forgiven because it's very easy to do that. Yeah. The difference between Sunder and Strong Guy is that Strong Guy has that weird little baby spit curl right, on his forehead. Right. I don't like it. And if he would just shave it off. Because he's a surreal Bilson Cabbage character who somehow ended up being drawn more realistic. Yeah. It is fun to see that little squad of well, Mirai and, and also, X-Men of for a second. the key moment of destiny's death destiny's at death the at the hands of, of legion. legion possessed by the shadow king who was also possessing moira right so it is it is a significant moment to what we have now learned about the relationship between all these characters yeah i think you have to read it because it is where the moira and destiny story sort of comes together and makes sense and that arc in isolation I think is very strong. I like that period. I think that what Claremont was building to with the Shadow King was a big mistake. Well, and there was a lot of editorial interference there that might have been for the best with that storyline. And the way, of course, it plays out with Claremont literally quitting halfway through an issue before the story is resolved is an absolute muddled disaster. Yeah. But all of the stories leading up to it, that period of the disassembled X-Men, much of which revolves around Muir Island with Moira there... I think is actually one of my favorite X-Men periods. So I would definitely recommend reading that just as an era. It also includes somewhere in those set of issues, a very good scene of confrontation between Moira and Magneto. This being before Magneto has learned about Moira's genetic tampering of him, where he has made the decision to return to ostensible villainy on the grounds that things are going to look bad for mutants. And he wants to take, to take that weight heat. onto his own shoulders. Yeah. Which is a really interesting and well-written scene between those characters. It's really good. It's Claremont's sort of overwriting of his own version 
of a story being driven by John Byrne to turn Magneto into a one-dimensional villain again. Yeah. So the Muir Island saga is, I think, uh, Uncanny 278 to 280, and then X-Factor 69 and 70. It's a crossover. There are a couple different collections of it. It starts a lot earlier than that, all the Shadow King plot with, like, slutty leather-clad Moira, as we were talking about. Right. But that's where, if you just want, like, the final confrontation... The Death of Destiny is an uncanny 255, so you may want to go back and start at like 253 and read through the 250s also for the Destiny stuff. It's just good. It's good stuff. The thing about the Claremont run is that it peaks in Inferno, and then after Inferno, he does sort of the Siege Perilous era where he's building towards something new, and it doesn't quite ever manage to come together because only two years later he's right. fired from the book. If you if you can banish from your mind the fact that he's going to quit the book and we're never going to get the resolution to this, it's great to read as it's going. Yeah. Like really all the way up through Extinction Agenda, it's pretty good. Yeah. And then it kind of falls apart because Bob Harris was interfering, frankly, with the story. Yes. And I'm not saying that the original story would necessarily have been better or worse than what we got. And, but... there, and there's a lot of creative friction between not only him and Harris, but between him and Jim Lee, who has taken over on art. Correct. So it's just it's a complicated one. But I think that it's worth reading because, again, the interplay between Moira and Destiny is not coming out of nowhere. Right. Destiny dies on Muir Island. Mystique kills Moira in the original version of Moira's death. Yeah. She, you know, she kills the golem now, we know. But it all kind of ties together from the Freedom Force period. So I think that that is worth looking at. Should we talk about Deadly Genesis? I feel like we have to talk about Deadly Genesis. <sighs> we should we should discuss it if we must. We have all been forced to experience it, so now we must discuss it. I did reread Deadly Genesis for this episode, and man, I still don't like it at all. No, it's 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 a bad story. It's we we talk about good retcons and bad retcons. This is a this, bad. Th- this one. is this is the quintessential bad retcon. And we kind of talked about it a little bit already in terms of what happens, but like what bothers me about it is in the classic stories, Claremont always gives Moira agency, mm-hmm. and this story gives Moira zero agency. Right. Charles just runs roughshod over her, kills her students, and then erases their memories from her head. Which, uh, I mean, quite the hubristic thing to do, given what he knows. Well, now it doesn't make any sense. This is the real problem, is that now it doesn't make sense. Here's at least the upside. Sort of like how the decimation stories might carry aside, I think, are bad. But the decimation era has retroactively made Krakoa more satisfying. Mm-hmm. And I think similarly, especially now that Adam X is back in continuity, which is, you know, because I always, as a continuity person, was like, this Vulcan thing doesn't work. Right. So that always bothered me. But that aside, I think that what now will happen, because Hickman is already laying the groundwork with the spotlight issue on Vulcan and Petra and Sway on the moon. Mm-hmm. And now Darwin is in the vault. Like, he's doing stuff with those characters. I have to assume there is a plan for retroactively fixing Deadly Genesis and making it into a story where Moira has agency. Unless we're just never going to bring it up again, which I would, in this case, forgive. This is a case where it was a bad decision. Maybe we just shouldn't think too much about it. Maybe, but I wouldn't be surprised if he has something in mind. Like... 
can you imagine the idea of because we never see in Deadly Genesis Xavier wipe Moira's mind. She just says on the tapes that he's undoubtedly going to. Right. 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 So the idea that Moira's mind was never wiped and that she made that tape and left it for the X-Men in case she's ever. Yeah. Why? Why didn't you ever say anything about it? And this is this is her deniability. Right. Like now it's Charles's fault. Like, you know, like things like that. Like I just there are ways you could do it that would make it kind of fun. Honestly, after rereading those backups, I remembered how much I liked Petra and Sway, actually. Right. Like, the thing is, I was so annoyed about the story when it happened that I was like, these characters are garbage. I never want to see any of them again. I was annoyed that Darwin came back and was in stories because every time he was in a story, I had to remember that Deadly Genesis was real. I was annoyed because I'm a Havoc and Polaris fan and suddenly Havoc and Polaris' story for like 10 fucking years. (laughs) And Rachel, too. Their story for like 10 years was let's deal with Vulcan in space. I was like, I hate this. I don't want to read any of it. But... Those characters have potential. Darwin is a good character, too. It's just literally like I was so aggravated by his existence because it underlined the existence of a story that I would rather dwy. Right. And I couldn't. And rightfully. And I think, you know, if there's no way Xavier can ever recover from that story because he's acting in a way where if you think about it, it's between the two of them, it would have been much more plausible for Moira to be the one pushing forward with the entire team just died, let's just form another one. Right. This is more her MO than it is Xavier's. Well, that's the other thing that really bothers me about the Deadly Genesis retcon is it makes Moira a mommy in a way that I don't think the character ever really was written right. previously. Other than to Rain, who really was She a does child. take in Rain. Yeah. I just mean in terms of temperament. Like yeah. even with Rain, she's not a touchy-feely person in that way. Yeah. She's loving, Mm -hmm. but she's not soft. The Moira of Deadly Genesis is weak in a way that I find objectionable. And I think it's of a piece with the one backup I really don't like, which is the one with Emma, Mm -hmm. which makes Emma weaker. And it's interesting because Emma's written fine in Deadly Genesis itself for the most part. She does cool things with her telepathy. She's upset about Sean dying. Right. Which is good because she should be and we never really see that again. That backup, I think, takes away a lot of Emma's agency. It does. And similarly, the whole story is kind of about how Moira is kind of a weak woman who wasn't willing to do what needed to be done. Like, that's sort of the framing. I like Brubaker as a writer. I think his X-Men run has problems with the way it handles women generally. Yeah, I would agree. I I don't think that his... I just don't think he's suited to the X-Men particularly. Like, it just doesn't... It's just it just never clicks for me. No, and in, and in interviews at the time, he even talked about how he really had not read anything since like the beginning of Chris Claremont's run. Like like basically since Chris Claremont and John Byrne were on the book, he had read absolutely nothing and had no interest in ever reading any of it. So he was like, this was a job, and you can tell is the thing. Yeah, it specifically bothers me when the Chris Claremont women are written that way. Mm-hmm. And I don't just mean any female character he ever created. I mean the Claremont dames, the tough broads. When a writer decides the way to make you care about this character is to make her a victim or to make her sensitive secretly or what, I I don't like it. I think it is, despite being decades later, a more regressive way of approaching a character than the way Claremont did. Right. In the sense that in the Proteus arc, Claremont has Moira reveal herself to be a victim of spousal abuse and rape, but you never feel like she's a victim in the story. Right. She doesn't need Xavier and the X-Men to save her from that trauma. She has rescued herself and she's going to rescue other people as a result of it. 
she is surviving. Similarly, I don't like when any X-Men adjacent character is called girl Mm -hmm. or woman as a code name. Like nature girl, that bothers me. Right. Because Claremont had a policy of never naming a character with a code name that had girl or woman in it. Because he felt like it marginalized them. He, in very short order, changed Marvel Girl to Phoenix. He changed the Marvel Girl's codename immediately, and he never introduced a girl or woman character ever. The only exception is Ms. Marvel, but at the time, that was a political statement. Right. Yeah, no, that, so... that, was, that, was, that was a statement of Carol Danvers' feminism, not, yes. not, not trying to just exactly. define her as a woman character. Right. And so that always bugs me. No girl is funny to me because that's just funny. Right. But otherwise, I never like that when it's like nature girl. Both in the case of no girl and I boy, it's a deliberate joke. That's a joke. It's it's, it's supposed to read to us like one of those goofy legion of superhero names. In this case, it's just that I never want to see Moira crying on a tape long after her death as this like tragic woman who Charles abused. Right. That doesn't appeal to me whatsoever and you can contrast that with virtually every other appearance she had one that i think of for whatever reason especially because of the way she's been retconned in hawkspox is from uncanny x-men 300 which is the issue where she's uh kidnapped by the acolytes after uh Mm -hmm. post X-Men 1 through 3, we get a little flashback scene of Xavier first debuting his notion of recruiting the X-Men, and she is so stoked at the idea that he's finally going to put together a team of militant warriors for mutant kind. Yeah. This is absolute typical Moira. She has been waiting for ages for Xavier to be as hard-nosed as she always has been. So for her to be used in Deadly Genesis... As the the conscience who would yeah. never want to push children into battle. Like, it doesn't work for me at all. Yeah, this is not who she is. And that's why I do think Hickman is going to do something to fix it. Because he clearly is interested in the characters and is interested in Moira. And it is the one real sore thumb in her overall continuity. Yeah, if, if not Hickman, then if that, you know, once rumored Moira series. We've been told that whatever was initially planned has fallen through but that maybe it can manifest in a different way at some point in the future i hope so because i think that that is i mean i would like hickman to write it himself but if he's busy which he clearly is right i would like to see it generally under a writer who gets the character Uh, yeah yeah i would too you know or who at least gets the tone mike carey doesn't write comics anymore he's very successful in novels and film if they bring back mike carey to do anything i would love mike carey on that book I think he was high on the speculation list. Yeah. I think that crop of British writers of that generation are the ones that we would all really like to see on a Moira book. Carrie, Ewing, Spurrier. There's a couple people who would really nail it. Kieran Gillen is otherwise occupied with the Eternals. Yeah, Kieran, I think, is busy. And he doesn't do a lot of in-universe Marvel comics, but he's another one who would, I think, be really skilled at it. He'd be good, yeah. With Carrie, it's just that I really like how he wrote Rogue, and it was particularly after many years of Rogue stories where I thought Rogue had been made into a weaker character, and he pushed back on that characterization in a way that I really liked. It would also be really interesting to see a woman get to write Moira. Well, that's the other thing, right? If they could somehow get, you know, N.K. Jemisin in, into, uh, sure, into Marvel sure. Comics. Or I think Marjorie Liu would do a good job. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I hope the book manifests. So 
Otherwise, I actually, at the time, enjoyed the Excalibur stories she was in. I I revisited them recently. They're not great. 90s Excalibur, you know, it can at best be recommended with reservations. It's a rocky road, but there's a lot of Moira in it. And if you just want a spotlight of her as a character, I think she is handled fairly well with, again, the major asterisk that a lot of it is overshadowed by this long-dragging subplot of her as the first human infected by the legacy virus, which never really goes anywhere until her death. And now doesn't and make, now any, doesn't sense. make any sense. So, yeah, on some level, it's good to just let it go. Right. I think we should now go into reader questions. Sure. I've chosen a handful, and if I didn't choose yours, thank you for writing in. I appreciate you. James Lafferty writes, Hello, Connor and Zach. I'm wondering if either of you think we will get to see Moira interact with her adoptive daughter, Rain, again. I'm Scottish on my mom's side and I've always gravitated to Scottish characters, and I really like both characters and their relationship. But that seems to have dropped off completely, especially with all the crap Rain has been through. It would be great to see them reconnect. Secondary question, do we all agree that Rose Byrne was completely wasted in her role in the newer films and we were robbed of her doing a Scottish accent? (laughs) Thanks again for such an awesome podcast. It brings me such joy each week to nerd out and hear the in-depth perspectives. Well, first of all, yes, Rose Byrne is where McTaggart is one of the biggest wasted opportunities oh, God, in the X-Men yes. films. That sucked. And Rose Byrne is great. And it's a real annoying Such thing. a perfect Moira McTaggart in such a wrong portrayal of Moira McTaggart. You know who I want to see play Moira X? Hmm. Tandy Newton. Oh, God. Wouldn't that be incredible? Because someone was saying, I think it was Alex Santos was like, let Tandy Newton play Emma Frost. And I was like, I could see that, but... I actually think that, like, Emma's white privilege is, like, an important part of the character. (laughs) Whereas I think Moira is really flexible backstory-wise. Oh, yeah. And Tandy Newton would be so fucking scary as Moira. But also, like, she can also be very loving and very warm when she wants to be. But she 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 has this underlying intensity. Yeah, yeah. there's a steeliness to her. I think that she would be really good. And she's British. I'm sure she can do a Scottish accent. Yeah. It would be good. But Moira and Rain, you know, we talked about how there really ought to be and uh, probably will be, I would think, in someone's hands, maybe not in the X-Men book itself, but in one of the titles in the line, a reckoning for everything that Rain has gone through with the lie that Moira has really had to tell her this whole time. Yeah, I think the problem generally is that Rain hasn't really had a good storyline since 1991. Well, yes. I mean, if we're being real, I think most people agree, frankly. Rain's good stories are the original run of New Mutants, and that's the end of the sentence. And that's it. And then it picks up again with the current New Mutants. Yeah, and I think it is generous of Vida Ayala to be tying up a lot of those rain plot lines from x factor because if it were up to me i would just ignore them and they are doing a terrific job with that character and on that book ayala and rice's new mutants is hands down my favorite book coming out of marvel comics right now i can't recommend it highly enough i think hellions is maybe my favorite but i would say qualitatively probably top two yeah. right now ayala's new mutants is only like three issues in and already feels like an all-timer yeah. x-men run i'm very 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 into everything they're doing with those characters and so I trust them to deal with Rain's storylines in a way that will be holistic for the character. But, I mean, Annalise Bissa on her episode used Rain as an example of a character that Krakoa allowed them to reset somewhat. Mm -hmm. And, listen, she needed it. Yeah. So that's the problem on some level with 
Rain is that you kind of have to fix Rain as a character before you can deal with any of Rain's interpersonal relationships. Right. But I think that there's a clear plan for that and that Vida Ayala seems to have a goal in mind for Rain is taking Rain somewhere. And I think once whatever that is wraps up and Rain gets closure with her half as guardian hell god son. Yeah. Then maybe we can explore the Rain and Moira of it all. Well, and it also, of course, is going to hinge on when and how. When and Moira reveals Moira herself. Reveal herself. Yeah. yeah. Right. I have to think, I mean, Hickman said in an early interview that when Moira shows up in the present, and this wasn't about the Moira anthology title, which would be in the past, but when Moira shows up in the present, it's going to mean that the Hickman era is coming to a climax. Right. That may not be true anymore because the wild success of this relaunch may mean that instead of a three-year arc, it's now like a seven-year arc. You know Hick- what I mean? Like Hick- we have Hickman no idea. is among many other things a phenomenally talented troll, so it may never have been true to begin with. Absolutely. So take it with a grain of salt, but I don't think we're going to see her reveal herself for some time unless she just shows up at the Hellfire Gala. I mean, you never know. Like right. you could throw us a curveball. I have no idea, but that's my feeling. And so I think that it's more going to be dramatic irony. I wouldn't be surprised if Rain starts talking about Moira mm-hmm. in a way she hasn't for like 20 years. Because we all now remember that Moira is an important character. Yeah, and, and this is and this is when we do see Moira are, are in those little instances like Emma unveiling the Moira statue. Correct. I think in a scene much like the one in Marauders, there were people who didn't like Proteus wiping away a tear of like pride about his mother. They're like, he hated his mother. And I'm like, I feel the need to stress, <laughs> Proteus did not hate his mother until he absorbed his father's psyche. Right. And he's now been resurrected in a stable form. Yeah, he's got perspective on Which is this what now. Moira wanted to do in that classic X-Men backup, mm-hmm. by the way. And now he can look back and be like, did my mother handle everything perfectly? No. Did I live in agony? Yes. Did she want the best for me? And do I love her? Also, yes. I thought that that told us a lot in one panel that I thought was really yeah. good. Because the Proteus we have now is part of the five bears no resemblance to any version of the character we've seen before. So until we get a story about the five that really digs into their new psychology, I thought that was just a good indicator of like, he's way saner than he was previously. And in very much the same way, I think that the journey that Rain is on now in New Mutants is in the service of turning her into a character who has the health mentally and physically and the perspective and the self-knowledge that if and when she is reunited with Moira and when she learns the truth about Moira, she's not going to be devastated and overwhelmed by it. Right, because the reign of X-Factor Investigations, if Moira showed up and was like, I lied to you, would probably, I don't know... It would, it would crush her. It would crush her, yeah. Well, she'd probably murder Moira and end the timeline. Like, she, you know, yeah, like, that, yeah she, she's, go, she's going full wolf as soon as that happens. Yeah, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done with that character, and I'm really happy with the writer they've chosen to shepherd those New Mutants characters, a lot of whom I think need some rehabilitation. Yeah. Because I think the last time I really felt those characters were used enormously well was the Zeb Wells New Mutants. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's right. So, we shall... C. Garrett Rooney writes, Hi, Connor and Zach. First off, so glad to have Zach guesting on Cerebro. I knew it was only a matter of time, and I can't imagine a better character to get his unique perspective on. On to the question. House of X2 is one of the most audacious retcons in X-Men history, and that says something. Specifically, the scope of what it proposes the readership accept about Moira McTaggart is rather extreme, especially when we're talking about a relatively minor character who was historically a completely unpowered human and who famously died back in the 90s. It was actually 2000, Garrett. Hmm. 
Just saying. Just saying. <laughs> that said, the community seems to have accepted the changes with minimal complaints. Not saying it's been universally loved, although I do love it, but the retcon certainly doesn't seem to have kept people from enjoying the stories that flow from it, something that's always a risk with that sort of thing. Why do you think that's the case? What made this retcon work? So I think that part of it is, as we've said, Moira was almost never a central character. Mm -hmm. But she is a very nostalgic character for people because of her prominence in the Claremont run. And her death is one of the great tragedies of the X-Men. So it's appealing to people to undo that. And she's a character people have heard of because Rose Byrne played her in those movies <laughs> that lay people have heard of. It's not like Saturnine, for example, where like explainers who is Opal Luna Saturnine became right. necessary. Moira is a touchstone that people can recognize, even people who are not super versed in X-Men lore. But I think that the number one reason everyone was willing to accept it is because she's been dead for 20 years. Right. Like, what else was she doing? Why not? It's a brilliant bit of casting, really, because Hickman had to select somebody who was going to be prominent enough that they had a role where they could have affected X-Men history to that extent, but not so prominent that disrupting them so thoroughly would break the X-Men. Would completely overwrite everything that we've seen. Right. It's also brilliant because Moira had existed in the background of so many stories, you could alter them without changing anything that's going to make the X-Men unrecognizable as a team. And at the same time, you could link it to X-Men history where it would otherwise feel totally separate. So I think without somebody like Moira, without somebody who had been in the background of all these X-Men stories, people might have reacted to the start of Hickman's run the way I reacted as a kid to the start of Grant Morrison's run. Mm -hmm. By saying, this has nothing to do with the X-Men that I've read up until now. This is a completely different comic. Why am I even in this? By choosing somebody with such a deep background in X-Men continuity... Hickman was able to tie in the radical changes that he was executing while still making it feel like something that was organically growing out of the past. It feels like one of Claremont's retcons. Yeah. The ones that we've talked about, like Magneto's backstory, where it's like, oh, sure, that makes sense. It doesn't track perfectly with every issue we've ever read, but it's the kind of reveal that Claremont often did in that classic run that would recontextualize everything. And also because it's just so well-written. It's also just a really good comic. Yeah, like, as as with any retcon, if it's handled very well, then it doesn't matter how radical it is. It's a good story, and so the part of your brain that manages cognitive dissonance chooses to accept this as plausible. Absolutely. Henry Mayer writes, Hey, Connor and Zach, thanks so much for podcasting about Moira this week. I can't wait to hear the episode. Looking back at Moira's publication history, which story or scene would you most like to see revisited with the new Moira X retcon in mind? In other words, if a hypothetical Moira X series was to be started by Marvel, which prior storyline would you want to see addressed first in said series? For me, the hardest storyline to fit in mentally is Deadly Genesis, and I'd love to see a writer try to recontextualize that story to fit the current continuity. So we've talked about that already, and I agree. I would like to see them fix Deadly Genesis. Otherwise... I would be really interested in a story about Moira and Tessa in mm. the Dark Phoenix saga. Because Moira must have known about Sage. So much as I would love to revisit Sage's deep cover years, I think that Moira and Sage both failing to prevent Jean from becoming Dark Phoenix would be an interesting thing to visit. I similarly would love... 
I find Amelia vote compelling. Yes. So I wouldn't mind going back to the storyline where Amelia is like, what if we just kill Moira that one time? <laughs> like, I am drawn to the moments of interaction between all of Charles Xavier's exes. angry exes. Yeah, I love that shit. I want to see more recontextualized interaction between Moira and Amelia Vogt and Moira and Gabrielle Haller. Yeah, Gabby Haller is difficult because she's a normal human who's a Holocaust survivor, and so there's all the explanations with Magneto about like why he's not 90. Right. But she becomes more difficult. She's she's just the timeline hand wave, and we have to do that. But her son is a reality warper. We can just yeah. make it work. She got young again somehow. Also, it's comics, whatever. Let's just go it's with it. It's comics. Right. But regardless, I would love to see more of Moira and Amelia vote. I would love to see more of Moira and Gabrielle Haller. Especially, I would be very interested to see a story about Moira telling Charles that he and Gabrielle would have maybe the baby they're looking for. Yeah, that plotting toward Legion if it happens. Because doing that to Gabrielle is really fucked up. And is probably of all the things Moira's done in this Life 10 the most morally reprehensible. And let's put that in light of another great thing that gets recontextualized here, which is, what is it, New Mutants number two or three? That's the next thing I was going to say. When Gabrielle Haller realizes that she needs to seek help for Legion, she goes not to Xavier, but to, to Moira. Moira, who is a little bit stunned that she's been picked here as the one to deal with this. All the New Mutants stories about Legion with Moira, I would yeah. love to see now because... He's now a second Proteus. She created him intentionally, and he's another destructive Omega-level mutant who is insane that she's responsible for creating. Yeah, it turns out the reality warpers tend to be trouble. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's a reason that the Ultimate Universe combined Gabrielle and Moira into one character and Proteus and Legion into one character. Right. It makes sense, right? Like, it's a very similar beat. Charles's ex has a child who's an insane reality warper. In the same way that there doesn't need to be a Jamie Braddock and a Jim Jaspers. No, they really could have been the same character. Right. right. That, I think, does just come down to the fact that Claremont wasn't allowed to use Jim, Jim Jaspers. Jaspers. Yeah, it was, it was the threat of lawsuit that made him come up with the substitute reality warper. He gave Jamie Braddock those powers, right. In the same way that Nimrod was supposed to be the Fury. Right, yes. There's so many things in the 80s would be completely different if he had not been barred from using those Alan Moore characters by Marvel at the time. And now consequently, and because everything was being made up as he went along, we have these redundancies. Yeah, these redundancies in characters. But there's dramatic potential there. Teeny Howard found a brilliant way to right. fix that. And, and in the same way, building on this relationship between all of the women that Xavier has left as wreckage in his past... With Moira very much at the center, opens up a lot of dramatic potential. Yeah, I really want to see Moira and Amelia vote talking. I really do. Whenever it's all revealed. Yeah. I want Amelia and Moira to sit down and Amelia to be like, so. Moira to be like, well, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> just to be kind of a, because I just, I find Amelia vote, of all the 90s post Claremont introduction she's one that i find really compelling yeah and again we talk about big retcons that have been introduced throughout x-men yeah history. she's a There's huge another one. character who's just thrown all through the x-men's past absolutely and like is super redundant with moira and gabrielle yeah to the point where like honestly it's only because gabrielle's not a mutant otherwise that would have just been gabrielle right Holler, they may right? as well have just retconned gabby into a yeah mutant. 
Because Amelia votes like big thing in the flashback story is like, here I am with Charles confronting Eric at Auschwitz. There's right, no reason right. why that shouldn't be Gabrielle. Exactly. But it can't be Gabrielle because it needs to be someone who can later become one of Magneto's acolytes yeah. and therefore needs to be a mutant. So they create Amelia Vogt. I think that those would all be really fun to revisit. And I would love a farcical sort of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern story about the golem. Yes, the the the, the, the golem completely misunderstanding who it is. Yeah, you know, as as much as I want to see a dancing between raindrops Myra series, I would frankly love to see a dancing between raindrops golem series. I would love to read all about the golem in the late nineties. This tragic creature trying yeah. to take on an agency of its own, but absolutely foredoomed to die. Yeah. I mean, I kind of wonder if the golem even had the legacy virus or if it was just programmed to decay. Right. Did, 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 did the so legacy virus options. ever infect humans? Was that just right. an elaborate fake? Well, it can't have infected humans because Moira wasn't a human. Right. You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing. Which adds this extra hilarious dimension when Beast is so angry at Xavier for covering up what Beast believes is the reality that the legacy virus has spread to humans. Right. But in fact, Xavier would know that the legacy virus has not spread to humans, so that's why he's telling Beast not to worry about it. Well, what I like is if we ask, why did Moira spend Life 10 pretending to be human? And not just pretending to be human, but emerging as a prominent human ally of mutants. Mm-hmm. What makes it clever is to think it's the one thing she hasn't tried, first of all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I imagine there's other things she hasn't, but it's something she hasn't done previously. It allows her to be a spokesperson for mutants to humans who is listened to sometimes in a way mutants are not. And when they decided she needed to recede into the shadows, they killed her specifically by proving to the world that the mutant AIDS wasn't limited to mutants and that humans could get it too. And that we're not so different after all. Her supposed death was the ultimate statement of human mutant solidarity. Yeah. So it becomes, she crafts a martyr narrative for herself as the righteous among the nations. Exactly right. Exactly right. She has turned herself into a fictionalized, ideal human martyr. And in the same way that we were talking about how the way that she's presented as the better-than-it-could-ever-be ally... That becomes a kind of strategic decision on her part that only she will ever be in the position to take on that act. Nobody could ever be as good and righteous as she's going to be. Right. But she knows how to fake it because she is faking it. And she's seen how this is all going to turn out. And she's already written the ending. Right. That's the thing. Like, she wrote the ending of human Dr. Moira McTaggart's life and had it play out on a public stage. And Emma's hospital is a testament to how well it works. Yes. Moira is still a hero to humans and mutants alike. Moira is a martyred symbol, and I think that that is really clever. So I would love to see something about the golem and about Charles and Moira. And they probably will never delve into that because the point of it is as a hand wave and they don't want us to be looking for like the exact issue she gets replaced or whatever. Right. But I think it would be fun and interesting, honestly, to dig into with her psychology. Eric Tarnowski writes, Hello, Connor and Zach. I have a question regarding our resident Scottish geneticist turned master manipulator, Moira X. I'm not exaggerating when I say House of X 2 is perhaps the most mind-blown I've ever been by a single modern comic issue. There are no other times I can think of where a creator has taken a formerly C-tier character and put them at the center of the narrative in such a big way and stuck the landing. It's definitely responsible for reigniting my enthusiasm for X-Men comics. 
Anyway, Hickman gushing aside, time for the question. Marvel's been sort of dancing around the idea of a Moira book for a while, perhaps an anthology that explores her previous nine lives. Which of Moira's other lives would you like to see explored in a prospective book like this? We saw only the highlights in Hoxpox, so I think it'd be cool if they managed to release something that dives deeper into her thoughts and deeds during those times. You have to be feeling pretty nihilistic and isolated to team up with pre-dawn of X-Apocalypse, after all. Looking forward to hearing this one. I never thought I'd be this excited about the X-Men's human scientist friend. So I would mostly want the Moira Anthology book to be about Life 10, mm-hmm. personally, and about where this retcon alters stories from the past that we are familiar with in small ways. But if we're going to get one-offs about previous lives, I would love to read a whole issue about Moira on her trask hunting spree in that one life. Yes. That's a fun book in and of itself. I think you're right that in a larger sense, what would need to be key in that book is that anytime we're going to look backwards, it's in the service of looking forwards. Correct. Anything we see from a past life is only because it's going to tell us something about why Moira is doing what she's doing right now. Because if we're just diving into continuity for the sake of diving into continuity... That's just Elseworlds stories. Yeah, yeah, then then we may as well be reading What If and What's the Point. Exactly. Caleb Warren writes, Hello, Connor and Zach. I have the good fortune of most of my Moira questions having been answered when Connor did this episode in my first nine lives. So big thank you to <laughs> Connor's one through nine. You're welcome. This time around, I'd like to know, who of anyone besides Charles and Eric do you think knows about Moira X on Krakoa? Do we feel like Apocalypse knew before he took off? The latest Marauders seems to hint that Emma might know. Did Black Tom have a hand in creating the no place that Krakoa doesn't even know about? I'm here for any and all speculation you care to throw out. Additionally, the precog of it all, how much do you think Moira's no precog's rule is based in an actual belief they could harm the project, and how much is trauma and bitterness from her first encounter with Irene? For all the sapphic vibes happening on Krakoa, Moira's approaching TV showrunner levels of can't let the lesbians be happy with her refusal to bring back Raven's wife. Thanks as always. Happy podcasting, Caleb. Let's tackle the precog thing first. We sort of touched on this earlier. I think that Moira is afraid of Destiny and doesn't want her back specifically. But I also think that Moira truly does believe that, like, blindfold can't come back either. Right. Like, they let Taro come back because Taro's precognition is not a mutant ability and is based on her interpretation of the cards using magic. So that's fine. But you can't let someone come back who is a precognitive of destiny's power or as we saw in the spurrier legacy i mean blindfold is destiny's great granddaughter it's implied or something like that and her power is growing over time yeah anybody who's going to be able to see the weaving of the time stream in the way destiny did is too much of a wild card and that's clearly why they had rosenberg kill off blindfold before house of x i'll be interested to see what happens with legion because, first of all, I imagine Legion has a precognitive altar somewhere. I can't think of one if there is one, but I have to think. He has ostensibly infinite power. Correct. And obviously he's very invested in Blindfold, in Ruth. And so particularly if Cy Spurrier gets a hold of Legion again mm-hmm. in Way of X, I think that could become interesting. I think that Moira really does believe that the precogs would cause the project to fail, but It does feel like, much like we are not bringing back clones with Madeline, which now they're like, shit, we've backed ourselves into a corner because little Gabby asks, what about me? I think that it's a blanket rule on some level that was made because Moira doesn't want Destiny back specifically. 
and that it will cause problems in the future. It feels like a flaw in the Krakoan system because you are not wrong to recognize that it's based at least part on a personal vendetta. Yes. Partly it's fear of destiny. Partly it's bitterness at destiny. Partly it's fuck her. Moira hates this woman. Right. And she wants her to stay dead and she wants to punish Mystique by keeping her dead. If Irene calls, I'm not home. Right, right. Yeah, and Moira hates Mystique too because guess what? It might have been the golem she killed, but Mystique didn't know that. So if Moira is making a decision that could potentially harm Krakoa on the basis of her personal desires, that's a red flag. That's a danger zone. Yeah, It's hubris, much like Charles and Eric taking in Sinister was hubris. And that's another choice that clearly is going to prove to have been a mistake of some kind. Yes. There are a couple choices that Krakoa has made that I think we are supposed to see as mistakes. Mm -hmm. One is the no precogs rule because it's short-sighted. I mean, literally, Destiny has longer sight than anyone else, right? The second is the thing with Madeline Pryor. Because it's clearly going to have consequences. Because once you start deciding who deserves resurrection and who doesn't, they didn't, they didn't properly really think through the metaphysics. Thorny of it. problem, right? The third is X Force generally, mm-hmm. and the fourth is Sinister. And I think that those are all plots that are moving together to show us the dark underbelly of Krakoa. Sinister ties into one of the other problems, which is the limits of Krakoan amnesty. Right. Which is something that is just, you know, at a certain point, it makes sense as an idea. But I don't think it's a coincidence that Fenris is in Marauders, because Fenris is pretty much the most loathsome set of mutants you could ever encounter. And... The fact that Fenris gets to hang out and watch the Crucible yeah, if, is meant to disturb us. If they've given amnesty to them, then they've given amnesty to everybody. To everybody, right. And so it's a question of like, all right, do we believe in this restorative justice model where everybody gets amnesty or... Should we have drawn limits? Should we be pitting a lot more people the way we did Sabretooth? And again, it's not an accident here. At the same time in Hawksbox where, where we're learning about this network of alliances that's been put together... Magneto name drops Operation Paperclip, yes. calling out the humans for recruiting all these former Nazi Hydra members. And Sinister is literally them doing Operation Paperclip. Here they are bringing in Sinister and Fenris and all of these literal Nazis. Yeah. I mean, they're playing the same game, but they're choosing not to recognize it. And that's supposed to be multidimensional. You're supposed to feel a little bit odd about that at best. Yeah, much like we are supposed to feel odd about another one, which is putting Sabretooth in the pit. I mean, we're supposed to find that troubling. On the other hand, Sabretooth is a serial killer and serial rapist who refused to stop doing those things. The project can only work if everyone's willing to cooperate. Yeah. So I I don't know. I think that Krakoa is a really interesting model of non-carceral thinking, but Sabretooth is given to us as an exception that proves the rule. And I'm sure that other people will also upset that apple cart. This is something that prison abolitionists come up against in arguments a lot, is people saying, well, what about people who are, it isn't safe to have out in society? And that's a question that I imagine we're going to run into more and more as the Krakoan experiment continues to unfold. Right, because it's the story of nation building that we're seeing in progress. Right, we're seeing it in real time. And so people are like, Krakoa is really messed up. I'm like, yeah, it's a newborn nation crafted by people who are not political scientists and they're just trying to make something work, you know? So Samali Vahanti writes, hi, here's a question on Moira that's actually probably more of a question on Jean. 
In Uncanny X-Men 270, Jean tells Storm how she, the Professor, and Moira founded the X-Men before correcting herself and crediting only the Professor. Then in Uncanny X-Men 381, she shows Cable her lair full of objects she collected before Xavier founded the X-Men. This is her as in Moira. Mm. When the two of them were working together, and in a recent issue of Marauders, we got a vague hint that Emma might know of Moira. Is it possible that Jean knows or at least knew about Moira's status? She was definitely closest to Xavier, and she did establish her own inferior version of Krakoa in red. Add those two Claremont issues and that Emma tease. I'm excited they might be working together. Thanks. So this is the other part of the last question that we forgot, or that I forgot, and we moved on from. Who else knows? Which is, who else knows? I don't think anyone else knows, because I think it's important to the story, and we would have been told if they do. However, I think Emma may suspect. I think that there are people who may cut into it as the story goes on. I think it is important for the sake of the story and its drama that nobody else on Krakoa knows about it. If there is anybody out there in the universe who knows about it, it would be a survivor of one of Moira's previous lives. Yes. And we don't know who has made it into a Dominion and come out the other side. Well, we saw Rasputin and... Right, uh, we know that they have gone inside a black hole. They got sucked into a black hole, which we were told is a way you can get them back out. Right. I think that Emma suspects something about Moira isn't clean. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the Marauder scene is very conspicuous. Why would Emma do that? Why would she invite Charles and Eric? Why would she expect them to be startled by it and be pleased that they are? I mean, you can just read it as a simple punchline. Yes. It may be that she suspects nothing and she was just expecting them to be absolutely delighted that they've created the statue in honor of their good friend and hero. You absolutely can read it that way. I think we're supposed to wonder. It's possible that she's needling them and she suspects. I don't know, but I think it is It is not unlikely that somebody on Krakoa is going to suspect. If she was needling them intentionally about their secrets with Moira, I think it's because she suspects something, not because she knows. Right. Is, I guess, what I'll say. Similarly, I don't think Jean knows. No. At all. I actually think that Jean has been kept in the dark about a lot of stuff. Subterfuge is not Jean's style. I could see Jean figuring it out and I could see Jean being told, but I can't see Jean just keeping it as a secret to herself to help other people with their conspiracies. Well, I don't know, because Charles told her when he faked his death back in the 60s. Yeah, that's true. It's a retcon, but she did keep it secret from everybody else. And as I argued in the Sage episode, I think that Jean knew about Tessa. Yeah, that's probably true. But in this case, I think Jean doesn't know because here's the issue. It's a problem with Jean and it's a problem with Ilyana Rasputina. Those are two characters who sometimes turn evil. And if you're Moira, knowing Jean's vast capacity for power, and let's guess that maybe, we don't know, we were saying earlier, maybe it had never happened. But maybe Jean became Phoenix in a prior life as well. You know what I mean? Do you trust this wild card? Do you trust the wild card that is Jean? I'm not sure that you do if you're Moira. Right. I think that she chose to let Eric and Charles in very specifically. Yeah, I think that's right. I think she made a very deliberate choice on who she was going to tell about her plan and her secret. And I don't think she had any intention of expanding it beyond that. I do think that Saturnine knows about Moira. I think there's very little that Saturnine doesn't know. Well, I'll tell you why. Because if we are to understand that what happens each time Moira dies is that Earth-616 rewinds, Mm -hmm. essentially, that would be observable from Otherworld. Right. 
Saturnine previously witnessed during House of M, the Scarlet Witch's reality cancer warping Earth 616 almost destroyed it. So I would have to imagine that although this is an unusual anomaly, it's something that they have observed from the Starlight Citadel. Right, because we know that she's not restarting everything in all realities. We know that something on the level of a god and a heaven survive her. Right. And that probably includes Otherworld. Well, Otherworld has survived things like this in the past. The only time Otherworld has ever been destroyed is in Secret Wars when the whole multiverse was destroyed. Right, right. But it was put back again the way it was before, and clearly it didn't count as a death for Moira. Right. So my sense is that Saturnine must know she knows lots of things about infinite realities, though, and may not feel the need to say anything about it. But there was a moment in Ten of Swords when she shows Wolverine her vision of what will happen if the Iraqi win. Mm-hmm. In the data page, it refers to Moira. And people were like, oh, my God, like, does that mean Saturday knows about Moira? Did she just tell Wolverine about Moira? And everyone was like, that's just a data page. Like the writers were like, no, no, no that's just a data page. Right. That's for the reader. I do think she knows, though, because I think she has to, because she is the spoke around which reality turns. Like, she has to know that that happened. But I don't think there's any reason for her to let people in on it. I mean, that's not her style anyway. I agree. She would use it for her own purposes, but she's not going to plot with anybody else. Yeah, if anything, she might kill Moira to try and produce an Earth-616 Brian who'll marry her instead of Megan. But that's, like, the only thing I could think of. She's the only character who I think knows, besides Charles and Eric, and I think... It may turn out to be significant at some point that she knows, but for now, it's just something I'm assuming, and she has no reason to talk about it. And I think Emma may suspect that something in the water isn't clean. That's all. No, I think that's right. Kyle Cantor's writes, Hi, Connor and Zach. Moira's diary entries and powers of 10 make it clear that only she has perfect recall of her previous lives, and that Xavier can access those memories only if Moira allows him to. The fact that precogs, especially Destiny, are low-key forbidden on Krakoa might mean that Moira simply doesn't want mutant kind to know that they always lose. But I suspect it also implies that her master plan is something not even Destiny and Mystique would approve of, given their Life 3 ultimatum. Do you think Charles and Eric are in on Moira's endgame? I have my theories about what it might be, but I think the fun is in seeing the narrative unfold. I sincerely hope it's a long time in coming. My strong suspicions are that the revelations of Life 6 will factor heavily into it. So we talked about this, and I think we both agree that the answer is no. She has not told everybody everything. Yeah, absolutely not. She has an endgame here that she's not revealing. I think particularly after Onslaught, she doesn't trust Charles with the full scope of her knowledge. Right. Reading through all of those journal entries at the end of Powers of Ten, you can see her becoming increasingly frustrated with the entire premise of trying to keep Xavier and Magneto under control. In the loop at all. Right. Yeah. These are children. She can't depend on their behavior. And so she has no choice but to keep some secrets to herself. Yeah. You have to also remember that this character is like, 1600 years old right if you think of all of the life she's experienced yeah these men are like children to her and she has also seen them at their worst in previous lives and at their most ineffectual she's steering them to try and get them where she wants them i don't think they have any idea what her plan is beyond krakoa right from the perspective of narrative resolution i think that moira needs to escape this cycle i agree I think for her sake, she needs to get out of this endless cycle of despair and defeat and not have to keep coming back time after time after time. 
So I don't think that the X-Men are going to end the Hickman run by making it to a singularity and disappearing off the face of the Earth. I think that Moira might. Yeah. I think that Moira is going to get out of this somehow with the knowledge that she's gained in previous lives. Well, that's the other thing about this retcon is I don't think Hickman is going to leave Moira on the table. Right. It feels like he brought Moira back for this story and Moira will exit at the end of the story. I agree. However long it lasts. And I want it to go on for a decade or two because this is the best the X-Men has been in my lifetime. But that's just good drama. You know, if you're going to use Moira as the character who provides... Then the story has to wrap. Yeah. If it's going to start with her, then it needs to end with her. And since her agency is what launched this in the first place, her agency needs to be what ends this mega arc. Right. And it has to come down to the other Chekhov's gun that Destiny provides, which is... The right choice in the the end. The choice. Whatever the right choice is. And like, what would an 11th life from Moira mean? There has to be a twist because as we understand it right now, Moira's death and turning into Moira 11 would rewrite the entire Marvel Universe as we know it. And they're not going to do that. They didn't even do that in Secret Wars when they could have done a full crisis and they chose not to. Just having to do this over again is no prize. Right. I think that whatever Life 11 is, it's something ascended from the cycle. It's something that she's going to do separate from the reality that we're in. Yeah. Yeah. That's my thinking. So... To answer your question, I don't think Charles and Eric are in on the full scope of her plan because I don't think she trusts them. No. That much. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm on the same page. Nor should she, frankly. I wouldn't. <laughs> Magneto, maybe. Xavier, definitely not. Chuck Marsh writes, Hi, Connor and Zach. I'm a huge fan of the Moira retcon. I think it adds a huge depth to the stories we've seen and choices we've seen her make in past stories. But this does remove the most prominent human ally from the X-Men stories. Yes, there are still allies, but Val Cooper, Fred Duncan, and the modern takes on Carol Danvers are cops. Stevie Hunter fades in and out of continuity. Yukio, while a good friend and ally, is more personally loyal to the X-Men than to the mutant cause. And Dr. Rao is, well, complicated. Do you think the minority metaphor loses something with this loss of Moira in that mutants as an oppressed people have no real non-mutants who are there advocating and fighting with them? Thank you again for your time, effort, and the love you put into this show every week. I always leave it with a laugh, some new ideas, and a few topics I realize I need to learn more about, and a deeper love of the characters. So we touched on this earlier. What do you think about that? I mean, it does take out that character. There is no character now that you can point to. Because again, like Chuck points out, Stevie Hunter is sort of the other one, but she hasn't been relevant in a very long time. Right. So I... I don't know that in 2021 there is a place for or a need for a character like the one that Moira was providing prior to the retcon. I agree. I think that she served a very good purpose when she was created and for all of those years. I don't think that it matches with the reality of the politics of marginalized identity in the world as it is right now. And this is something that the people who hate the Krakoa era, who think the X-Men have become villains, the people who go on and on on the internet about that, the thing that they're objecting to, frankly, is self-determination by a minority group. They are objecting to the fact that the X-Men are no longer interested in assimilation. They are putting themselves in the role of the humans who have been rejected and feeling hurt by it, instead of putting themselves in the role of the X-Men who have realized that their attempts to reconcile with and assimilate into the humans have 
failed will always be on humans' terms and will never succeed. And they must make this determination on their own. I don't think that there is a place for that character anymore. And like I said, I think the more interesting version of that character is someone like Valerie Cooper, who is an ally, but in part out of self-interest and doesn't realize that she is acting out of self-interest, but actually is. I think that that's a more interesting story for a human character right now. Or I do want to see characters like Yukio or Amanda Sefton, other human allies of the X-Men who love the X-Men, but who may personally, much like those readers, feel rejected by Krakoa. I think that that is an interesting story that we could explore. And there's an element that we do probably need to explore, because one thing that really has been left behind here in the way that Krakoa has been imagined, we are meant to think that virtually every mutant on the planet who is able has chosen to relocate to Krakoa. And as a result, there is no sense of the division between diaspora mutants and Krakoa mutants that we would actually see in real-life situations that mirror the Krakoan experiment. That changes the nature of how humans are reacting politically to mutants in light of this, because it means that any association with mutants, any way that you envision yourself as somebody apart from mutants or in allyship to mutants also means in allyship to or in rivalry with Krakoa. A foreign nation, yeah. Right. And I've talked about this at length with Spencer Ackerman in his two episodes. I want to see more mutant characters who reject Krakoa. Mm -hmm. You know, I recently reread the Mechanics miniseries for the Kate Pride episode. There's a scene in that where Claremont has Kitty say that she likes living in the world She says, I'm a Jew. I have a thing about ghettos, even the ones we make ourselves. Mm -hmm. Kitty has always been someone who wants to dialogue. She is a diaspora Jew. She is not someone who has any interest in Zionism, particularly. And I think it makes sense, therefore, that on the Marauder, she's sailing around the world interacting with people. She's not kicking up her heels on Krakoa because she doesn't want to do that. Right. She's she's going to have one foot in the rest of the world at all times. Right. Now, I believe that she's changed her mind about... Elements of that. This kind of symbolic Zionist experiment in general. Yes, right. That's plausible to me, but it's definitely something on which she has changed her mind. Yes, but something that she still is skeptical enough of to the point where she doesn't feel comfortable sitting around and living there full time. Right. I would like to see more mutant characters who just reject Krakoa Mm -hmm. outright. I think that we haven't seen much of that at all, except from bad guys like Mikhail Rasputin. Right. And I would like to see it generally. And I understand that it's by design that the creators are not doing that. I understand that they don't want Krakoa to be problematic in the way that a real-life nation like Israel is problematic, and they don't want to have those kinds of political divisions in mutants. Right, but the fact of the matter is that the Israel allegory is there on the page, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Krakoa is Israel without conquering. Right. There is no Nakba because no one was living on Krakoa before the mutants arrived. Right. Krakoa is not occupying anybody. Krakoa is not in the position of depriving anyone else of rights or of land in order to take their nation. Which is why it makes more sense that more mutants would feel like it's okay. Because I think that for a lot of diaspora Jews who don't feel good about Zionism, that's the issue with it, right? And so when you take that out, okay, well now it's sort of a guilt-free experience. On the other hand, the other reason that a lot of diaspora Jews don't like the concept of Aliyah is they feel it undercuts the idea that they 
do belong to the nation that they were born into and live in. Right. You know, I am an American. And this is the level to which I really, I have a sympathy with what Xavier has gone through over time. Because he so desperately wanted to believe that acceptance into human society would work and was progressing. That this dream he had, that he wasn't going to need to separate himself because he could truly be a part of these other people who would embrace him as their own, that it would work. And he learned the hardest of possible ways and through literal tears and tragedy that it was never going to. And he had no choice but to separate from them. Yeah. And I have to imagine that a lot of mutants throughout the planet Earth have not been through the same experience that Xavier has, have not learned the lessons that he's learned, and who still do firmly believe that they can be embraced by their society and a part of their society without joining the Krakoan experiment. Right. And we haven't heard from them. Yeah, we've even seen that like 90% of mutants are on Krakoa now or something. Right. And so it's a, you know, I understand that it is simpler, but I would like to see that diaspora sentiment. It has been shown in small ways. I liked the story Darcy Little Badger did in the Indigenous Voices uh-huh. issue that sort of touched on that. The idea that Krakoan citizenship doesn't preclude you from being part of the nation of your birth right. is important. But... It does to some extent because the idea is we're not subject to American laws, right? So you kind of do have to forsake your American citizenship to some extent. You're going to have to, at the very least, become something in addition to what you were. You're, yes. you're, never, you're never going to have that undivided loyalty. Yes, and dual loyalty is, of course, the big anti-Semitic canard. You know, as, as as a Jewish reader, it becomes a little troubling in the way it reads, in, I think entirely by accident, because it does imply that the natural inclination of a marginalized group, should they have an ethnostate created in their name, would be to join it and reject the society that they were always faking their way into being a part of. Right. I do think that that is an unintentional yeah. implication, and I would like to see it explored more. I think that the character of Kate would be a good person to do it with. I agree. I'd like to see her interact with Magneto because they were always the two opposing poles yes. of Jewish mutants. She was a diaspora Jew and he was a Zionist. Right. It was yes. always very much that. And I also, like I've said this, I was like, hire a Jewish writer to have Kate talk to Sabra because mm-hmm. Sabra is... That's the other thing. Like, I was surprised in Sword to see that Sunfire is on Krakoa. Right. Because Sunfire is a super nationalist to the point where his costume is considered pretty offensive in a lot of Asian nations. It's it's his entire MO as a character. I think that we should see how characters like Sunfire and Sabra and other characters who are aligned specifically with their native homelands react to Krakoa Uh because I don't think that the relationship is going to be I just want to see us dig into more of that we've only really seen it explored with Betsy with Captain Britain exactly and with her she's definitely decided Krakoa is my home and 
Britain is my homeland and they're two different things. She and Brian have some tension about that. Mm-hmm. And it's part of why people don't like her as Captain Britain in story. Right. You know, like it's a Captain Britain with dual loyalty. Like, what is that about? We don't like it. But Teeny Howard in that Excalibur run is the only writer who's really been doing what we're discussing here. I agree. Which is to take head on this notion of what does it mean to have dual loyalties and how yeah. does a mutant deal with it? And I'm hoping that maybe we'll see more of that in Way of X, which seems to be the book kind of about mm-hmm. the Krakoan condition. Robert Secundus writes, Hello, Connor and Zach. I'm writing in to ask Zach too if he hasn't already in the episode talk about his thoughts concerning Hoxpox, Jewish scripture, the no place, Moira, and the abyss, or I think to home. He wrote it in Hebrew, but it's to home. Oh, very good, Robert. <laughs> so this comes out of Hickman's mapping of the different levels of the heavens and the underworld as he's giving us the levels of intelligences in the universe. And he uses abyss to refer in the little, like, subtext at the bottom of the page to some unmentioned level that seems to exist below and beneath all of these additional levels of universal intelligences. It's interesting to the extent that that term is used biblically and out of Mesopotamian mythology that predates the Bible to refer to the kind of primordial state of chaos out of which the universe was generated. Like Tiamat stuff. Right. The primordial abyss. Because in biblical Jewish belief, unlike in traditional Christian belief, the universe was not created ex nihilo. It it was not generated out of nothing. It was generated out of a state of chaos in which all things already existed, but intermixing without logic or order. And it was the creation of order that generated the universe as we know it, and therefore the levels of intelligence as perhaps Hickman is presenting them. So what this all means, if anything, I don't know. But he's clearly playing around with some mythological and biblical terminology in referring to the different states of order and intelligence in universal existence. Yeah, and that word tahom for abyss is used both in Genesis to describe the formless void that God creates the earth out of, and also in Genesis later as where the flood comes from. That's right. Noah's flood. So conceptually, there's a lot there. It's also used in Gnostic thought. Sometimes it's used in Kabbalah, Mm -hmm. notably, it's sometimes used interchangeably with the word Sheol, but it's part of the cliff off. Yeah. This is not an Isaac Luria podcast. So <laughs> I'm not gonna But if you're interested in the Kabbalah and the real Kabbalah from like the Zohar, not the Kabbalah Center in Hollywood with the red bracelets. <laughs> Kabbalah. If we pronounce it correctly, then we can differentiate it from the Kabbalah Center. Yeah, true. The Kabbalah as opposed to Kabbalah. Right. The Kabbalah has a lot of stuff in it that people have often used in science fiction and fantasy because it's these really mythic concepts and the abyss is one and of them. And Claremont uses it very prominently in the initial portion of the Phoenix Saga. Extremely. When the X-Men are envisioned as the Kabbalistic tree of life yep. with Phoenix at the center. He does it again in X-Men The End. That's right. At the end of that, when they all ascend to become like one with the phoenix in the universe, they form the tree of life, Mm -hmm. the Sephiroth. So, yeah. Listen, what I loved most about the Shi'ar golem and the use of the word golem is that the X-Men's mythology is so Jewish in so many ways. And I love any bit that ties that sort of back in or that makes that. I mean, the White Hot Room is a very 
Kabbalah yes oh vibe. yes like the idea that the phoenix is shattered into pieces and that Jean has to gather those from the white hot room I mean Morrison is someone who is very into mysticism and things like that definitely has read Kabbalah texts right Isaac Luria's whole idea about the fallen world is that we are all trying to get back to a primordial state of creation and that we have to gather up the pieces of the divine that are here on Earth. That's right. And the notion of mutant husks as the shell that contain within them the immortal soul right. is very Kabbalistic. Yes. I mean, Kelepot means peel. That's right. Right? Yeah. The, so the, it's the, like the peel a, or the shell, the, outer, the yeah. outer layer that houses the divine soul within. Yeah. So there's a lot there. And... I don't know how much of it is 100% intentional, how much of it is just like absorbed from the way that that's penetrated all of our culture, but it feels intentional because the use of the word golem feels very intentional to me. Yeah. I think that Hickman likes using religion and mythology and biblical terminology in the service of the new mythology that he's creating for mutants yes. in this run. Yes. Well, I mean, giving Apocalypse a wife called Genesis is pretty... Right. You know, I also think that Whatever just happened in the first issue of Sword mm. a couple months ago. That's right. Where they accessed the far shore, which maybe is the White Hot Room, or maybe went through the White Hot Room, or maybe... But certainly, I mean, they were forming a little diagram that very much resembles the diagram of the Tree of Life. Yes. And ascending the levels of heaven. In the Merkaba, yeah. And I mean, no writer at Marvel right now loves playing with Kabbalistic themes more than Al Ewing, who has used, you know, Gnostic and Jewish texts all throughout his immortal Hulk run. Yeah. To which the Book of Enoch is completely central. So, I mean, that that is extremely, extremely deliberate. Yeah. So the point is, we're not sure what it all means right. yet, but... I like it. I dig what you're putting down. Sure worth keeping an eye on. Because superhero comics are so Jewish and the X-Men specifically are so Jewish, it feels good. And that's part of why I would like them to address some of the diaspora concerns, because that's the one thing that doesn't feel right. Yeah. On that level. I agree. To me. I agree. So we'll see. We'll get there eventually. The last question comes from David Powert, who writes, Hey, Cerebro, I've explained many retcons to my boyfriend, though I seem to have given him the impression that retcons are a bad thing. I guess they're called retcons when you want to complain about them and just accept it as canon when they're good. What are some of your favorite examples of good retcons? I know Hickman has talked about them needing to be additive and not destructive or something similar, which is why I think the Moira retcon works, at least for me. But curious on your take. Thanks. Love the pod, David. So I would say, the, for me, the gold standard of a good retcon, which is, you could call it an X-Men retcon, is what Alan Moore does with Captain Britain yes. during his run on that title, where he takes a lot of these really herky-jerky, absolutely make-em-up-as-you-go-along, one-week-at-a-time elements that had been introduced in Captain Britain's past, with these really ridiculous things like the computer mind that goes evil and lives underneath Braddock Manor. And he recontextualizes them into this story of Merlin creating the perfect hero who is fashioned to save the multiverse from the disaster that is Jim Jaspers. And he does it in such a way that is so well told and so logically foolproof that you look back at all of these events and think, ah, yes, that's what it had to be all along. I think that if you want an example of a great retcon that adds to the character instead of takes away from it, that's the one to look at. It doesn't feel like a retcon. Right. It just feels like, oh, this is stuff we didn't know yet. And that's what the best retcons are. Mm-hmm. That is 
absolutely the gold standard. He creates the Captain Britain core. He invents the idea that Captain Britain is the defender of the multiverse. Right. All of that is not there in the 70s Captain Britain stories at all. He's just an off-brand Captain America, essentially, from Britain with an Arthurian legend vague thing thrown in. And Alan Moore turns it into this Byzantine multiversal Doctor Who adjacent thing. Right. In, In a way that becomes so central to the character and adds so much to the character that when you look back on all of those earlier lesser stories, they become better because of it. Yeah. And he did it on the fly because he replaced Dave Thorpe in the middle of a storyline. Like, he didn't create Saturnine and Jim Jaspers. He just explained who they were. Right. Like, that's what's so wild and, about And, you know, an- another great example uh, is, of course, what Claremont does for the original 05 X-Men era, specifically by retconning Magneto's backstory. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is the best retcon. By turning him into a sympathetic character with a long history of rivalry with Xavier over philosophical principles... You can look back at all these goofy Silver Age stories and see it as this fencing match between these two longtime rivals who are, you know, frankly, broken up lovers who have never managed to reconcile with each other, fighting it out to see whose view is superior. None of that is in the original stories, but the original stories become much, much more interesting if you imagine that it's behind it all. Absolutely. Another retcon that is done well, even if it's done in the service of an editorial mandate that I don't approve of, is the retcon that Madeline Pryor is a clone of Jean Grey, Mm. is done very, very well in terms of how Claremont makes it logically make sense with what's come before. Right. The only awkward parts are actually wheezy in the X Factor issue in Inferno where Madeline gives this monologue about like all of the evil things she did in secret that doesn't make sense. Because Wheezy is using Madeline for a very specific purpose of forgiving Cyclops for every problematic thing he's done over the course of that run. Absolving Scott and Jean, right. So I just always assume that like Maddie's just pissed off and saying that she did because like we know she wasn't hiding things from the x-men because she didn't know that gene was back until the issue which we've read where sim tricks her into selling her soul so she's mad and she's saying stuff we don't have to believe yeah so it's fine but i think that that retcon is really good i also think that the retcon that cable is nathan christopher summers is genius yes that's just a really good one knitting that together with Rachel very clearly, even in that initial story, being the sister who takes him in in the future. It's frankly, it's so elegant. Yeah, it feels like it was always intended to the point where you tell people it wasn't who aren't deep into the lore. They're very surprised. Right. There are times when additive isn't good, though. Yeah. A thing I'm always resistant to is this character was there all along in this old story. Yeah. There are times it's really good. I think the Tessa to Sage retcon is very, very good. Yeah. And again, why not? Because she was always so... Mysterious and... Unremarkable in the background. Yeah. Yeah, right. Such a strange character without explanation. Weird character whose allegiances seemed odd. Right, yeah. So that was a good one. But... In part, it's because Claremont, again, used a character who had been there in the background, who actually was there, Mm -hmm. and explained her. The reverse of Tessa is Astra. Yeah. The character who gets retconned in the late 90s into having been one of the original members of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and is the creator of Joseph, the clone of Magneto. Right, right. That character sucks. You can't just do that. You can't just say, oh, 
this is the forgotten sixth beetle. Like right. it doesn't, you know, because because the resolution to the Joseph retcon sucks in general. Yeah, and this is also the problem with Deadly Genesis is that when you go to a story and you undo it by adding a bunch of stuff that wasn't previously there, it mucks with the original story in a way that I don't think is good. The Dark Phoenix saga into X Factor retcon that it was never Gene. It's done well. But that's another example of a retcon I think hurts the story. It's making the original story worse. Claremont does his level best to try and mitigate the damage, but it can only ever be damage. It can only ever be damage because saying that Gene wasn't Phoenix means that almost none of Gene's publication history up to that point was actually her. Right. And, th- and then you end up where suddenly Wheezy is writing stories grappling with the fact that Cyclops lost his virginity to a cosmic entity on a butte near Warren's house instead of with his lover, Gene. And like, why are we telling stories why about are this? We because dealing somehow with this? We've, been, right. we've been cornered into having to do it. Right. And then the very neat solution at the end of Inferno, where it's like Gene absorbs all of Phoenix and Madeline's right. memories. So and it was now all we Jean. never have to talk about it again. But it's not sad satisfying to the reader right because we know i mean it's very not satisfying on the madeline front because we know madeline's her own person we've been reading her for six years in the comics but it also is unsatisfying on the basic level of the gene phoenix thing because it's like okay so gene was phoenix but she didn't do any of the bad stuff right phoenix but only for the good parts right it's not satisfying and that's why i think the morrison shift there where it's like no gene was phoenix always whether or not it was her body right that was her is the way to go and why i really disliked phoenix resurrection oh yeah we don't have to get into that but like outside of the original story and then morrison's use of it as soon as you just imagine it as a go-to cosmic entity on the level of the elders of the universe or galactus it becomes boring it's no longer interesting it's a dime a dozen marvel cosmic creature what they're doing with it right now is really the ultimate in that oh where where it just becomes a video game power up to whatever character jason aaron wants to hurl it at as opposed to the primordial expression of gene's selfhood and connection to the universe it damages the phoenix and it damages gene as a character gene because of who she is is tapped into a fundamental force of the universe yeah I mean, that's what it's supposed to mean about gene it's not that gene herself is so ultra powerful it's that she has a connection with the part of the universe that is a fundamental primordial power and nobody else can access that and that is unique to her and to her daughter rachel Mm -hmm. and no one else can really do it and i think that it has really harmed gene as a character in the same way that it has devalued the phoenix as a concept in the broader i agree marvel universe so i wish that they would leave it alone yeah that cat's out of the bag yeah so, I mean, I really think that it's been downhill since AVX. As as with so many things. Since Endsong, really. Yeah. So I think the difference between good retcons and bad retcons is that a good retcon adds something. It's additive rather than destructive. We've said that. But it also adds something that makes sense with what came before. Mm-hmm. Deadly Genesis is a bad retcon because it doesn't make sense. Right. It doesn't fit what we understand to be true about these characters and the events that took place. The Moira retcon is a good retcon because it doesn't contradict anything 
important about the character. Right, you can read through these past events in the way that we have been in this episode, saying, okay, this becomes funny, this becomes ironic, but none of it becomes contradictory to what the X-Men or what Moira are doing in any of those stories. Except for the Legacy Virus storyline, which right. killed off the character and which people, frankly, didn't like. Right. So all it does is undo the storyline that wrote the character out, which people at the time were not happy about, and... And it fills in the space that's vacated by that story with a much richer story. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say. I think that, oh, here's another, here's another good example. A good retcon is Fabian Nicieza's accidental retcon that Psylocke right. swapped bodies with a real Japanese woman rather than just having plastic surgery done to her by the hand. A bad retcon is in the first issue of Fallen Angels when it's implied by Kanon that she was awake and conscious in the body while Betsy yeah. was using it. That has not been mentioned since, and I imagine will never be mentioned again because it's a continuity error. It's specifically, it's incorrect. Right. The whole point of the story is that when Kanon dies as revenge, every trace of her within Betsy is eliminated. Like, they literally say, like, every piece of her soul has left the body. Because it was really the purpose of that story, frankly. It was some continuity cleanup. The purpose of the story, yeah. It was the cleanup. That was supposed right. to just say, okay, now you're just reading about Betsy again. Right. And, you know, Conan was dead. Even when she comes back in Mystery and Mad Report, she's confused. Right. It's not like she's just been hanging out. So that to me is just like someone not thinking through the implications of what they're saying i choose to just view that as a continuity error right. and I, it hasn't come up if it does come up i imagine teeny and zab will do something with it that would be smart but i would just as soon have it be chalked up to a continuity error sometimes a mistake is just a mistake yeah like how we all know that scott lobdell fucked up with like rogue's backstory in that one issue of unlimited right and we just accept it and don't worry about it sometimes you have to just accept that someone fucked up Basically, a retcon, like anything else, is a storytelling device. It's a technique. It's only bad when it's clearly done for pure shock value or to fuck up someone else's story. Right. You know what I mean? Of which Deadly Genesis and Resurrecting Jean Grey are examples, respectively. Correct. Yeah. Deadly Genesis was pure shock value. And then the X Factor thing is Shooter right. overruling claremont yeah the the, the burn stern shooter collective going over claremont's head yeah so that's when it's not so hot there's also the third variety where it's just fucking stupid right who would have thought that enter the phoenix was a command being given to odin oof oof well i think that's a great place <laughs> to start to wrap Zach, do you have anything else you want to say about Myra McTaggart before we start to wrap up? I think that anybody who has checked out of X-Men when this era started needs to check back in. Because I think that Moira McTaggart is going to provide some of the most interesting and innovative stories that we've read in literal decades for this franchise. And I'm excited to be following along with it. I agree. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media and plug anything you want to plug? I am on Twitter at, at Zach Rabaroff because I am consistent with my real name across social media, as is my way. And you can find my writing at ComicsXF on a regular basis. Well, thank you so much for being my guest. This was a lot of fun. Well, I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, well, maybe we'll have you back. You never know. Who can predict the future? There's no precogs allowed on Krakow. That's right. So we just don't know. 
You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes and transcripts as I get them up at Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page for the podcast, and also find a link there to the Cerebro community Discord. Please don't bring any bad vibes. You can write in to Cerebro with your questions, comments, and feedback at Cerebrocast at gmail.com. Next week's episode will highlight Alison Blair, the Disco Dazzler, with guest Evan Narcisse. If you have questions for me or for Evan, please write in. I'm excited about this episode. I love Dazzler. She's really stupid in the best possible way. (laughs) And I adore her. Thank you again for all of your support. Thank you for listening. And until next time, everybody, bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world.